Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to Crime, Lime, and Vodka. We're a newly established podcast, which is made up of a bartender and a hairdresser who likes to unwind with a cocktail and a crime case. We'll contain violent descriptions and streams of details following the murder cases. Here's to make a difference in the only way that we know how. Thanks for tuning in to Crime, Lime, and Vodka. Hey guys, welcome back. I'm Tracy. And I'm Amber. And this is Crime Lime and Vodka. So today we're going to be doing an episode on a Japanese cannibal who was also known for necrophilia. And he is actually a free man now, even though he murdered, ate, and raped. So um, I'm going to give out a few little trigger warnings before we get started. Because if you're not into this, it's not your jam, you can go ahead and pass on to the next episode. So we're going to be doing a trigger warning on rape, necrophilia, cannibalism, um, abuse, foreign, murders, you know. It's scary shit that we're fucking scared of. Okay, so I say Sagawa. I wasn't sure how to say it, so I just kept telling myself, I say I say, I say Sakawa. <laughs> I went and ate with Rose the other day, and I was telling her about this, and she was like, isn't that our friend's cat's name? Is that what she got it from? And I was like, no, I think it was a cartoon on Disney. So it's definitely not related. I don't think she would name her eight-year-old child's cat Sakawa after a cannibal. She's not us. I mean, yeah, we do tend to do stuff like that. You named your cat after Freddy uh Kruger so yeah yeah. he's my favorite I named Binks from Hocus Pocus so there's that you know whatever so I say Sagawa was also known as Pang or the Kobe cannibal and he murdered and ate parts of Renee Hartvelt in Paris of 1981 so before we get into the crime itself I'm gonna tell you a little bit I'm gonna tell you a little bit about I say I say, I say, I say Sagawa. This is so weird. I don't like doing four and ones because of this reason. I can't pronounce the things, but whatever. He was born on April 26, 1949 to some very wealthy parents. His father's name was Ikeria. I'm not even going to try and pronounce his mother's name. <laughs> it's not really that known, but like his father was well known in the Japanese culture for being the president of the Kirita Water Industries. And he um, actually helped fight all of his legal terms. Like, he never once turned his back on him. Hmm. He helped him fight everything, put forward millions and millions of dollars for lawyers. Got him out of some crazy shit, too. He was very privileged when he was first born, but he suffered from enteritis, which is like a small intestine disease. So he recovered from multiple injections of potassium and calcium in a saline. So he was very, very ill. Not mm. only that, but he was also born premature. So he had a small frame and a small height at 4'9". That's like your height. 4'10". But yeah, yeah, <laughs> same, same concept. Not a creepy cannibal, but yeah. Wow, he's tiny, huh? He only weighed like 120 pounds and he was four foot nine. How so did he, he was how tiny. How did he take control of these women? 
Oh, girl, being we... that tiny. Well, he he didn't automatically come out and like decide that he was going to be a cannibal. It just happened over time, and he figured out this crazy way to take over somebody. So, okay, this is how it all started. He was really into literature as a, at a young age. From him being so ill, all he really did was like read and stay in his room or like go to the library at school. Well, one day when he started the first grade, he was like the weird kid that nobody wanted to hang out with. Like he had his family friends and then he had people that just bullied him, made fun of him. And they had this slim, tall little first grader when he was in first grade. And he, he, he described him as a handsome young man and they were changing in the gym, getting ready for PE. He saw his thigh and he was like, mmm, tasty. He wanted to know what it tasted like. So he <laughs> automatically... Like immediately he just looked at this guy's leg and was like... Mm-hmm. He had a thing with thighs and butts. Like, later on he would always be attracted to wanting to eat people's thighs. Like, that was just the appealing part of their bodies to him. Hmm. Ew. Like a, a juicy I steak. I, I don't think... I don't look at a woman and be like, mmm, her thigh would taste so good with some garlic. <laughs> like, who does that? I say. I say does that. I know, like, I'm laughing, it's creepy, man. <laughs> I mean, who, in first grade, you're just like, mmm, I want to eat his thigh with some yeah. garlic and rosemary. Ew. Fucking weirdo. But anyway, I literally wrote, yikes. After start talking about the young male's thigh. Yikes. He said that his obsession started then, and when he was just six years old in the first grade, he started fantasizing about eating flesh. He even partook in bestiality, where he let his dog fondle him. Uh, so I was watching this interview about him on YouTube. Oh, he was, like, licking it. He was talking about how, like... He was never talked to about sex or, like, masturbation or anything. And he would, like, get off on weird things like people's thighs or, like, thinking of eating them. So, instead of him just learning how to jack off like a normal 10-year-old boy or whatever or however you are, I don't know. I don't know how old you are when you start jerking, but, you know. Instead of doing that, he put some peanut butter on there and let his dog go to town on him. And he was like, I would do weird things like that. You didn't have a shampoo bottle or something to, like, figure things out? You just Man, thought, yeah. oh, my dog, a bed. Ugh, like, just... put your pee-pee in between the mattress and the bed frame. <laughs> like, I don't what? know. Go, go ham on that instead of your dog, dude. Yeah, uh, yeah. But he, like, went ham in bestiality at a young age. So he was already very weird. And he found himself to, like, self-loathe and, like, think about cannibalism for the envy. Like, he wanted to absorb people's energies and he wanted to absorb their beauty. Kind of like the Elizabeth Bathory thing, like, Mm -hmm. where she would bathe in their blood to stay young. He wanted to eat them to be beautiful. I kind of get it. Not the eating part, but... But, like, wanting to absorb them? Yeah, yeah, yeah psychos think like that yeah i mean Mm -hmm. i guess whenever you're like that far-fetched you're just gonna think of the craziest shit well he ended up having a dream around this age of him and his brother being boiled in a large pot and then they got eaten 
like Hansel and Gretel and that's all he could think about and that's when he started thinking like I can eat somebody I can literally eat somebody because I dreamed that I was getting boiled in the pot and getting eaten he didn't say like what he was getting eaten by if it was a human or like this fantasy monster or whatever Mm -hmm. but he was like "Mm, let me just go ahead and eat somebody so that's when all of it started when he was six years old he had that dream and he was like oh you know i guess i might as well just start eating people right yeah six i was listening to a podcast earlier of jeffrey dahmer and like when he was six years old he asked his dad like what would happen to these bones if i dropped him in bleach i remember them doing that in the movie yeah but his dad was like a biochemist yeah so he didn't think there's no he was a, a research chemist but he was also into biology so he was like my kids into science mm-hmm. like we can bond off of this but he didn't have a dad like that he was just like going off on these crazy imagination things but i mean dude just get an imaginary friend don't start imagining eating people just like play with them hang out go in the jungle gym Ooh. fucking build a puzzle play tiktok i mean tiktok tiktok <laughs> play tiktok TikTok. Play TikTok. Sorry, guys. That was uh, Amber's wife's phone ringing. Because they have to be right outside the door, right? Oh, look at Freddy. So, not to get off subject, but I have three cats. And I'm obsessed. And Amber's always been a dog person. And I've been the cat person. And she ended up rescuing this stray cat outside. And she named him Freddy after Freddy Krueger. And he's sitting on the bed next to her. <laughs> what is he even doing? He just looks like I want, dude. He's so pathetic. And then her dog's pregnant and about to have puppies. So she's been dog sitting all day for her dog. <clears throat> Let me just dog sit for my dog. Freddy, stop that! Oh, he's giving me the opie eyes. Okay, sorry, not to get sidetracked, but here we are. Um, so yeah, instead of like imagining eating people, just chill with them playing TikTok. <laughs> I hate myself. So he didn't really act on any of this until he got older, in his late twenties. But as a kid, he still grew up with that intention of murdering and eating somebody yeah well he's been thinking about this his whole life but he wasn't even thinking of murdering someone like he said he thought of it as he just wanted to consume them Mm -hmm. but in order to do that he had to eat them i mean he had to kill them oh my god i'm getting confused in order to eat them he had to murder them yeah so that's when he was like okay i gotta murder them so when he was 24 years old he found this beautiful little german student because he was he moved from japan to germany when he turned 24 years old to just he would just move around and go to different schools well he ended up moving to paris later on in life for school so right now he's in germany and he finds this beautiful young blonde german student and he was like mesmerized by her he saw her in a little short dress and he was like those guys i want to eat them those guys are being ate today so he follows her home and waits for her to fall asleep breaks into her house and i guess he didn't think about this before like he wasn't going in there to rape her or whatever he was going in there to eat her so he didn't think about how he was going to kill her to get to that point Mm -hmm. so he's looking around her bedroom for different 
weapons that he would use against her. He didn't bring a gun. He didn't bring a knife. He didn't bring anything. And he finds this umbrella, and he's like, I could beat her upside the head with it. Well, lucky for her, she wakes up. And she starts screaming and freaking out. And it startles him. And then he can't even do anything. Like, he has the umbrella in his hand, and he just, like, is starstruck. And he's like, (gasps) so she calls the cops, and the poor girl is, like, but naked because not everybody sleeps in clothing. Yeah. So, I mean, she lives by herself. She just wanted to be comfortable. So, right. she's naked. So, she's freaking out because she thinks that he broke into her house to rape her. But little did she know, he broke into her house to murder and eat her. Mm-hmm. So, they call the cops and he doesn't say anything to them because they didn't think anything cannibalistic because first thing that pops in your head isn't, oh, he came here to eat her. Yeah. Cause... So, they were like, okay, he came here to rape her. Mm-hmm. So, he gets... um charged with first attempt rape but his dad the wealthy man he is ends up paying know. off the charge and was able to get it dropped so he was never charged with attempted rape so he got away with it mm-hmm. like course. he always does so after all that he gets um expelled from his school and he decides that he's gonna go get a phd in literature so he moves to france in 1977 at the age of 27 he said while in an interview, quote, almost every night I would bring home a prostitute and try to shoot them. But for some reason, my finger froze up and I couldn't pull the trigger, end quote. Wow. After he kind of um, went under the radar, raid, raid, radar, <laughs> under the radar. <sighs> I lost my train of thought because I was trying so hard to pronounce radar right. <laughs> After he went under the radar, he was like, okay, so I have this perfect murder in my own eyes to commit. So he planned it out vigorously. Mm -hmm. So he found this beautiful girl. Her name was Renee. Let me show you a picture of her. She is, she really is so pretty. Like, I was like, there's no way. I mean, I don't know why I think, like, back in the 80s, they didn't have pretty people. They obviously did. She was really pretty. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. She, she's beautiful. She was only 25. Oh, that's... Yeah. That's her after she died. <laughs> she was a young Dutch student who he found very fond of because she had beautiful thighs, I'm guessing. And he decided to invite her over for dinner one night. So he invited her over for dinner and they had a good dinner. They would talk about German literature. And he was like, you know, one day you should come over here and um, read some... German literature poetry for me and let me record it because I just love hearing your accent and she was like okay cool so a few weeks later um she decides let's get together again for dinner and I'll translate the poetry for you he was like okay cool come on over later tonight to my apartment so he literally sets up his house to commit the murder but she has no idea what's about to happen she just thinks that she's going over there to read German poetry for him be this sexy little girl because he never found asian women to be attractive or edible worthy i guess you would say Mm -hmm. he was like i don't want to eat asian people he always found foreign your western european women he said there was just something about them like they were taller they were thick they had nice breasts they had pretty hair and beautiful eyes and he envied that because he was this short ugly asian man not that Asian people are ugly at all, but he definitely was. 
Yeah, he felt ugly. He still is ugly. He got uglier by the minute. He looks just like his father, who is also very not not very rough. Ooh, ooh. He creeps me out. Like, just looking at him in his interviews, he gives me the heebie-jeebies. The glasses. The bald hair. The talking about it. Anyway, he decides to invite her over one night, and he sets it all up to where her back would be turned. So she would be doing a recording like us, sitting at a table, and he would come from behind her and attack. He wasn't sure he was going to do it, but he decided that he was going to shoot her like he had been planning to to these prostitutes this whole time. Mm -hmm. So she comes over. They eat supper. Everybody makes fun of me for saying supper. They're like, it's dinner. And I'm like, it's (laughs) supper. Dinner is supper. It's the same fucking thing. I say dinner. I say supper. Everybody's like, why are you saying supper? And I'm like, that's just what we say. I don't know if it's a Louisiana thing. Mm -hmm. You're from here. I don't know why you say dinner. Mm -hmm. But people from here tell me, why are you saying supper? And I'm like, bro, lunch is lunch. But anyway, so they eat eat their dinner. And she sits down in front of the books that he had her translating. And she gets ready to start reading it off to him. And he comes up from behind her. And he doesn't even say anything. It's very, very creepy how he did it. He just takes the shotgun that he had, a rifle, and shoots her in the back of the head. She wasn't dead yet. So she falls out of the chair and he just lets her bleed out. But as he's doing it, as he's letting her bleed out, he tries to take a bite. He said that he took a bite of her left, her right butt cheek. Raw? Like it just bit her? Yeah, the girl was still warm. So I mean, she was kind of cooked. Oh! He said that he took a bite of her right butt cheek instead of her left because the left was closer to the heart and he was scared of blood. You just blast this girl's brains all over your living room and you're worried about the blood. Kooky padooty. Coco for cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? Yes. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, sis. (laughs) He was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Wow. Or some right butt cheek by Renee. That's what he wanted. Mm -hmm. But his teeth weren't sharp enough to bite through her butt muscles and her skin. So he tried to use a serrated knife. It didn't work either. He couldn't slice it. So... He leaves her where she is in the middle of his floor, goes to the grocery store down the street or whatever you call it. I guess he went to like a convenience store. I don't know. And bought a butcher knife, comes back home and cuts off pieces of her butt. He, he stored it whenever they found her remains in his home. This is what they found stored in his refrigerator. He cut off pieces of her breast. He, this is what they have found all these plates of meat he said that he would take his finger and like pull apart he said when i first cut open her skin there was this yellow substance it was fat you're eating pieces of her butt so it was fat and he was like it kind of disgusted me so i peeled that apart he would eat her butt raw or her boobs or her face whatever he chose he even took pieces of her leg to eat he would either cook it down with like a gravy or he would eat it raw your face right now (laughs) oh my god and he did that for several days in the middle of him cutting parts of her body off he repetitively raped her corpus her corpse so you're telling me that you're grossed out by blood but you're cutting parts of this girl's this girl's body 
and eating it. You literally, you were literally causing blood. Like, what went through your head when you're doing this? And you're like, oh, it's a good idea. Let me throw it on the frying pan. Like some spam. This poor girl was tortured. He would cut pieces of her off, save it for later. He wrapped it up to put in the freezer or in the fridge. He made sandwiches out of her while he was continuously raping her corpse over a three-day period. So after a while, he started to notice that there was this scent in his home, like of decomposing flesh. Yeah, dead So this is like what he did to her body. This is how she was found in a suitcase. Oh. So he takes he takes two normal sized luggage suitcases and he cuts her limbs off and he like cuts at the joint, but he puts his tor- her torso and head in one suitcase and the rest of her limbs in another. And he decides that he's gonna go down to the lake in central Paris and drop it off. Well, as he's doing that, a police officer stops him because he's being really suspicious. This is parts of her body that was found too. So you could like literally see where he was cutting into her to eat. Oh my god. He was kinda like a freaking cow. That is gruesome. And this is how they found her into in the suitcase. Like you could just see her foot chilling, hanging out of the Poor girl. Okay. Yeah. Jesus. They never noticed that she was missing yet because she was just a college student. Like they were like, Oh, she was probably purring or something. And she she was also very she was like a foot taller than him she was 5'10 so I guess people would have thought like she was last seen with him she could fight him off Mm -hmm. because he's so small built and she's a very strong sturdy woman you never but you never know no no you never you never know this is so creepy that like you think about things like this you're like how many times have I gone and hung out with a new friend and you don't know like they could just and sometimes they feel crazy, and, and it makes your eye twitch, and you're like, "Nah, it's fine." I don't, I don't think I've ever hung out with anybody who gave me like. I mean, I've gotten creepy vibes from people yeah. where I didn't want to hang out with them, but I don't think I've ever went anywhere where. I have. Situation popped and in my head. I have. places, man. I had personal things. But like, you never went <laughs> over there and got shot in the head and ate. Yeah, for real. So you're lucky we're yeah. not in Paris yep. or Germany where he snuck into anywhere. But anyway, it's wild. the man decides, you know, hunky dory, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go down to this little gnome lake, drop off these suitcases and just like leave. Well, he drops one, and it just so happens that a cop is behind him, and he's like, "Is this your suitcase?" And the guy's like, "No." Well, he says later in an interview, if I would have said yes, he probably would have just left it alone. Mm-hmm. But he said, no, it's it's not mine. So the guy decides, okay, well, I'm going to see what's in it. Unzips it. And he sees this sheet, this, this sheet covered in blood, and then he sees a foot. And he's like, he looks at a woman down at the top of the hill, and he's like, murderer! And he just drops everything and just buckets like he just he he gets on out of there he just said i just simply left what the fuck bro they let you leave i would have been like yo he murdered somebody stop him because i mean i saw somebody from getting a drink (laughs) (laughs) hey heather stop her (laughs) murderer 
Like, I would have been freaking Something. the fuck out. Especially being a police officer, I would have been like, I need some backup down in the middle of Paris. You just never know, like, what's going to happen during that situation, you know? I, I've never came upon... I mean, I've been around dead bodies. I've worked in the funeral home. Mm-hmm. But I've never been around a dismembered body like, to think about. Chunks oh, yeah. missing. Well, he didn't see that far yet. He just saw a foot and... <sighs> So, he just leaves. Four days later, they end up arresting him. And they found him, they arrested him, and they started going through his belongings while he's in holding. They're questioning him. Because they don't know exactly who this girl is. They never got to run the DNA. They didn't really have DNA tests back then. So, they were probably looking at her dental records and things like that. So, he ends up... (laughs) This is so crazy. He ends up getting arrested, and he's being held... With the murder charge pending. He never went to trial yet. So they're doing on this investigation. They're going through his home. And they find her breasts that are chopped up. The the one that he didn't eat. Pieces of her flesh on her face is missing. So like her jaw and her like teeth are exposed. Because he was like literally gnawing at her face. They found pieces of her buttocks. Her legs. And they found pieces of her forearm. And a piece of her rib. So they find all these different um, parts of her body and they're like, okay, this guy is berserk. We're going to go ahead and charge him with murder. So they start doing the filing paperwork and he's sitting in jail for two years during all of this. He's not writing anybody. Nobody knows who he is. But he's known as a a murderer and she's known as the victim. So they don't really have a whole lot on him. So he decides to write a book while he's in jail on his case. He never released it. He was kind of like keeping a journal. I don't know if like in Paris they do their prison differently. But I know like in Italy for one. For um, the US and Canada. Like they go through the things that you write on. Your journals and your letters that you send out and you receive. And they see like what you're writing about. And what you're saying and all this. So they can hold it against you. Mm-hmm. Well I guess they didn't do that there. So he kept that journal for himself until he got out of prison. Which we didn't think he would ever get out. So two years in. He's just sitting honky-dory in his little jail cell, and they decide that he is insane. He committed the murder by insanity. So they are taking all these different forensic psychologists, and they're examining him, and they're like, there's no way that this guy is doing this because he's insane. Like, he has a motive for it. He wanted to get a sexual arousement for it. So they end up deporting him to um japan back to tokyo japan and he ends up in a mental institution but before that they were like you're insane we're never gonna let you out you're gonna stay in a mental hospital for the rest of your life Mm -hmm. forever in isolated confinement so they decide you know what we don't want you here so go ahead and go back home they deported him so he goes back to tokyo japan and he gets held at the mazua hospital and they're looking more into his cases and they're like he's definitely not insane he had a sexual motive for this because everything had something to do with sexual tendencies and Mm -hmm. like he would get off by it so they were like there's no way that he did this because he's insane but in japan paris dropped the murder charges against him what because they were like, yeah. Japan's going to deal with it. Even though she was murdered in their country. Oh, my God. In, in that city. 
they never transferred the information to Japan. So they didn't even know that he was a murderer. They knew that, like, the hospital knew. But the court system did not know. The government did not know. The DA did not know. Nobody who was investigating any murder cases in Paris relied the information to Japan. Wow. So he's literally getting off scot-free. So after two years of being held for insanity, he gets released from jail. Well, he doesn't get released. He signs himself out of the mental institution, and he just goes free. So he ends up publishing a book about his case and his murder, and he goes into detail about it. He he literally spills his guts about everything that he did. He says when it started, when his motive started, he made a comic book about the murder and like literally drew out different comics of him committing the murder and eating her. Oh my god. And disposing of her. Who the fuck published this? Him. No, like there he oh. was like, you know they got yeah, like a backup publisher. I, I guess they didn't like, believe it. Like, somebody him? was this ballsy to just be like, what the hell? Bro, he literally... So, he checks himself out August 12th, 1986. He ends up publishing a book that next year of the murder. And then a few few years later, he releases the comic book of the murder. And then, in 1997, he writes a book about the Kobe child murders. So, he's trying to be, like, this true crime writer... Where he's writing about other cases as well as his own. But nobody would hire him. He became like a full-time writer because nobody would hire him from knowing that he murdered this girl. Mm-hmm. Like, he's well-known in Japan now. He done wrote this book. It's nonfiction. So it's like very well-known that he really did commit this murder. And he's making a joke out of it. Like, he's making mockery out of it for making a comic book with this poor innocent girl's murder. Yeah. And he's just so open about it. He was like, yeah, I let my dog lick me off. (laughs) Like, how are you okay with doing these things? His dad ends up dying knowing that his son was a murderer and he let him off. Like, he helped him get off scot-free. What did, did his dad have any comment, like, Mm -mm. before he died? No. No, to him, his son made a mistake and he forgave him. Oh, man. I don't have kids, so... No, but, I mean, it's one thing with loving your kid and accepting what they have done, and there's another of being an enabler. Like, with addicts, if you let them continue to do what they do, you're an enabler. If you give them a way of doing it. So, you're literally getting him off with no repercussion for what he did. You're enabling him. Yeah. It, It was just such a fucked up thing. So, now... This is in 1997. He decided that he was going to try and go to school in France again. Oh, my God. As a French language teacher. They let this man back in here. Well, the manager was very impressed. The manager was very impressed with him that he even used his real name after knowing that he committed these murders with that name. But he was rejected. Because all the other workers were so scared of him and scared of, like, what he did that they would not allow him on the premises. Yeah. Who wants to work with somebody who openly said, I killed and ate this person. Ha, ha. For sexual enjoyment. For, like... To get off. Who wants to work with that? 
I mean, we're crazy and we do stories like this, but I don't know about you. But we don't but condone it. But if this it. man was coming in the salon to cut hair with me, oh my God. I got to go. That's like, I remember my I wife. Go. My wife cut hair. Well, I mean, she's a hairdresser. Hello. You're a hairdresser too. But she was um, cutting hair at a little salon. And this guy walks in and he's super creepy. And she was like, he gave off these like pedophilia vibes like he had these little bitty tiny tiny glasses and like this long stringy hair and he was like just cut my hair like just trim it so she cuts his hair and then she was like he gave me really weird vibes like I was weirded out and at that time like I was always at her shop because I didn't have a job I had just got kicked out of my parents house so I like Mm -hmm. would chill at her salon and I had brought my camp my computer that day and I was like, let's Google his name. Like, you know his first name. And come to find out he was a sex offender. And he lived with his mom a mile from the school that her mom works at. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my god, babe. Like, this guy gave you those vibes. Like, you can read people like yeah. this. So crazy to me. Like, I can, I don't know, I'm very gullible. And I just let people say and do weird things. Mm-hmm. And, like, it dawned on me later, like, that was creepy. You shouldn't have done that. Like, that time that guy followed me to my car out of Walmart. With the magazine With thing? the magazine. <laughs> With the magazine. You wrote him a fucking check. Well, listen, bitch. I didn't have no cash. And I was like, can't run a credit card. But the guy won't leave me alone. So I was like, okay. We are so different. He literally stood and stopped. This was before I was a bad bitch. <laughs> This before I was a bad bitch girl. I would have threw a can of peas at that man's head or something. And I was working at my old job, so, like, I was all dirty. I stunk. I smelled like diesel. So, like, first off, I'm not attractive right now. I look like a fucking goblin. <laughs> Second off, I smell like motor oil. Third off, I'm little bitty, so you could probably, like, eat me for supper. For supper! So, he was just creeping me the fuck out. Like, it started at, like... I don't remember I was going to get, I guess, the milk aisle or whatever. And he follows me all the way back. I think I was getting beer or something. <laughs> me. I think I was getting beer. And he follows me to the checkout line. And then he follows me in my car. And I was like, dude, I don't want to buy your magazines. And he just kept going on. And then, like, I remember I got in my car. And he, like, stopped my door. And I was like, and I just froze. And he was like, so are you going to buy a subscription? I was like, here you go. And I just write the check out. <laughs> And I'm, like, shaking. And then I get in the car, oh, and I'm, I like... I should be laughing. That's I call okay. Zoe, and I'm, like, Bae, um, I just made a bad a bad decision. And she was, like, what did you do? And I was, like, I wrote a check for this guy who was trying to sell me magazines. And then I had to call the cops after. <laughs> and I closed my bank account. And, yeah, it was just a long thing. How much was it? I think it was, like, $28. <laughs> but he had my bank information, yeah, like, my rowdy oh. number and everything. And she was, like... You dumbass. <laughs> I can't you did that. Because then we would like, Well, the next day, we go too. back to Walmart, and the guy's following us down the aisle, and she's like, back the fuck off. And he was like, I'm just trying to sell magazines. She said, you're not talking to her. Back off. And he, like, ran out. Like, he ran the other way, and I was like, <laughs> well, I don't have this intimidating gesture. Like, I was just like, here you go. Right? The check, <laughs> like... God. You got nervous, though. It's not funny. You got nervous and scared. That's not cool that he pressured you like that. And it's also kind of creepy. It's not kind of... It is creepy. Well, my brother told me the same thing happened to him. And he's just gullible and likes to buy shit. And he bought a five-year contract with him. Oh, my God. (laughs) I was like, 
well, at least I didn't do that. He tried to call and cancel it, and they were like, you signed a five-year contract? Shit. At least I didn't do that. But there's been other gullible things that I've done in my life. Like, I feel like I just give people the benefit of the doubt. And Renee, she was such a sweet girl, she probably did the same thing. Yeah, she was like, this little ugly, bad breath, ugly, snaggletooth motherfucker. With some bad glasses. Ain't doing nothing, you know. He just, just wants me to. Something. He just wants me to read German to him, and he'll probably like jack off when I leave or something. And no, he fucking ate pieces of your body. Maybe she just thought like he was rich or something. You know? His parents were wealthy. It makes me think about Andrew Cunanan. He was yeah. very rich, and he would do things, and he did murder people. Hardy though. And he was Asian. He was Filipino. Yeah. Not an Asian thing, but you know, I mean, just so happened that they both are, and they're wealthy. Well, yeah. But he never got hired again, and now he's just sitting pretty doing interviews for Vice and uh, writing books about crimes. Wow. So he's just sitting pretty while this poor girl was murdered, and it's never going to be able to be brought back. He got famous off of killing somebody. I mean, honestly, if you think about it, all the serial killers get famous. People get obsessed with it. Like, I don't... Hello. We I mean, are people. We are those people. Yeah, but we don't, like, fall in love with them and, like, yeah. write them. Like, I did want to write some killers. Just to learn things about them. Yeah. And, like, see how their mind worked because that's the interesting part. Yeah. But, like, I never thought, oh, I mean, I did think a few of them were kind of cute. Like, Alyssa, Alyssa Bustamante. I used to think she was mm-hmm. so fine. But it's not because she killed somebody. She just was attractive. Or like Jeffrey Dahmer had some cute days. Pretty people can be psychos too. Jeff, um, so, Ted Bundy. People. I still thought he was ugly. Yeah. Now Zac Efron is not ugly. He played him well. He did. All right, guys. Well, I guess we'll stop rambling now and go ahead and get this ended. But thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I'm sorry that it was a little quick, but it was a short one. But that was the case of I say Sagawa. And tune in next time for another new episode. We're going to try and be a little bit more frequent with our episodes. Life's just been really crazy. Amber just got off of quarantine with her wife because her wife had COVID. Coronavirus. Coronavirus. (laughs) And I just got over being sick. I had a really bad upper respiratory infection. So now we're finally able to get back to our lives. So we're going to try and be doing this at least once a week once every twice every two weeks or whatever see what we're doing so if you guys have any ideas of what y'all want to hear next just let us know love you guys bye hey guys welcome back to crime lime and vodka i'm tracy and i'm amber and today we're going to be doing the conspiracy of kurt cobain's death i love him so much (laughs) whenever i was watching the documentary for montage of heck and uh soaked in bleach i was just Mm -hmm. like that's my man. I haven't even watched it yet. <laughs> Which one? Either? Either. Well, you see... So now I'm about to learn all the stuff. I watched him a long time ago, back in the day, when my, uh, almost said addiction, my obsession was at an all-time high, and <laughs> then I rewatched Monta- Montage of Heck yesterday, I think it was like last night, and Toby's like, that shit's so loud, because like, they're just playing his music so loud. Like, even for the movie, it was loud. So I was like, okay, I gotta keep turning this thing down. But Soaked in Bleach is about the conspiracy of what they think happened to him. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna get into it. 
So, Kurt Cobain was born on February 20th, 1967 in Aberdeen, Washington to Wendy Fardenberg, that was like her main name, but her name now is Mm O'Connor, and Donald Cobain. His name was Kurt Donald Cobain. I thought it was cute. When he would sign his name, he would do K-U-R-D-T. I think that's so cute. His parents divorced when he was nine years old. So that pretty much changed him completely. He was like super happy and an excited kid. And once they divorced, he kind of just went down that spiral that a lot of divorced kids go through. I mean, Mm -hmm. I didn't have that, but like a lot of my friends, they were always like, I don't know. Their personalities changed a lot, I guess, with everything they were going through. His family had a musical background. His mom's father, which is his grandpa, played in a band called The Beachcomers. His aunt Marie, or I guess you would say Mary Farley, played a guitar in an unnamed band. And his great uncle Delbert was an Irish tenor. Okay. So he's kind of destined to have like music in his blood. So he grew up around music. So they thought it was really cool. So for his 14th birthday, his uncle gave him the option so I could buy you a bike or I could buy you a guitar. And he chose the guitar. He was right handed, but he would play his guitar left-handed so like he took it apart and restrung it to where he could play it left-handed wise which who thinks of doing that that shit yeah that's like when you play baseball they have like a left-handed baseball glove and shit i didn't know that until i started looking this shit up so he was seen as a very happy kid until the divorce so when his mom remarried he started having like outbursts at school and he would get super bully like he would bully the other kids at school and he started to break into shit or like break things or start failing school skip school like he stopped going to school completely and dropped out so like he was showing how bad he was to piss them off I feel like like you know how they do the rebellious kid Mm -hmm. when he was like the rebellious kid and um he he witnessed a lot of domestic abuse with his mom and his mom's um, new husband, which it resulted in his mom having her arm broken. So, like, he witnessed a lot of the abuse that she was going through, and it would piss him off, but she wouldn't do anything about it. Oh, like, she never man. left the man. She never divorced him. So, like, when he was going that to sucks. therapy, his therapist was like, look, I think he needs a single-family environment. It would make him a lot better. Yeah. Well, instead of his dad taking that upon himself to make him feel more at home with his step-siblings and his siblings, he pushed him around. So he moved in with his aunt and uncle, and then he moved in with his grandparents, both pairs of grandparents, and none of them really wanted him. He was just being pushed around by all these people. So then he ended up moving with a friend named Jesse Reed. And, like, when he started being like living with them he started going to church and he became um a born-again christian which is really weird because like when you listen to his music he's like anti-god everything mm-hmm. like in heart-shaped box he is hanging on a cross so i think that was really like well he's not legit so hanging on a cross still? but like did he die that way what do you mean Christian? Did he say no? He, say he, he was, or that was just the thing that he did when he was younger. It was just a thing he did when he was younger. Oh. I feel like he was very, um, he was very like into religion. So he just, um, he 
he started his anti-God fashion in his song lyrics later on. I guess it, like, described him as a Gnostic or whatever. Mm-hmm. So after he left Jesse's home, he began couch surfing. And he would go stay in the waiting room of the hospital he was born in and, like, sleep in the waiting room because he said, you know, nobody's going to tell the guy who's waiting on his sick family to leave or stop sleeping in here. So he ju- he would do that when he had nowhere warm to stay. Did it work? Oh my. Yeah, he did it. Like, he did it once in a while, but, like, he said he didn't want to, like, get caught or anything. So yeah. he's, he didn't do it too frequently. Um, he explained in one of his songs that he made something in the way that like he lived under a bridge and in cardboard boxes but they never had evidence that he actually did but i mean who was who's just gonna make that shit up yeah like Hmm. he was he was homeless so he did what he had to do but he would bounce around until he got a good gig and started jannering at a school he finally had enough money and we get hotel rooms. So he ended up staying in um, room 226. It was his favorite because it came from a song, Rock, rock Drugs, and 226. So, like, I mean, that's how rock he is or whatever. He was just, like, he, he was that rock icon or what the fuck ever. He was, like, a sub-pop genre until grunge came out because huh. they never had yeah. grunge. So in 1985, he formed a band named Fecal Matter after he dropped out of high school. They soon disbanded in 86. <laughs> Your name. Ew. Fecal, Fecal Matter. Matter. I mean, okay. Nirvana's way better. He got I... that from a Buddha uh, documentary he was watching. Yeah, that sounds better than Fecal Matter. Yeah. <laughs> he was gross, though. I mean... Dirty tampons. Like, he, a lot of his drawings, like, whenever you go through his journal, are gross. Like, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, born babies coming out of the vagina with hair. and Yeah. This weird shit that he would come up with. So, he would hang out with the band Melvin. And he even tried joining them, but he felt like they didn't fit his musical goals that he had going for himself. Until he met Chris. Novoselic. Well, I don't know how to say his name. I love this band so much, I don't know how to say his name. Okay, we're going to call him Chris. He practiced upstairs above um, Chris's mom's hair salon with Mm -hmm. their band, and he tried to convince him to start a band with him, and he just refused to. He was like, nah, dude, we're not going to be in a band. But then they eventually started a band named Nirvana with a drummer named Chad. They played a few gigs, but, like, they weren't getting big because Chad sucked, but so did Kurt and Chris. They both sucked. (laughs) Like, Chris played guitar, but he didn't have these actual, like, rhythms that he would follow. He would Mm -hmm. just do that, and then he would just scream into the microphone. Like, they were not good. So, whenever they decided that Chad wasn't their goal, they fired him. And then he broke up with his girlfriend, Tracy, who he... He wanted a rock and roll girlfriend who was in that scene with him. Probably also a heroin addict. So mm-hmm. he ended up getting a new drummer named Dave Grohl and a new girlfriend, Courtney Love. So he started dabbling into heroin in 1986. And his reasoning for starting heroin was because he went to go to his dealer one day to get some oxy and aspirin because he had really bad stomach issues. 
and he would go to the hospital and try and figure out what was going on. Like, he was just constantly throwing up or, like, shitting his brains out. He could never keep anything down. So when he would eat, he would just automatically get sick. Mm-hmm. So he had no nutrients. That's why he was so skinny. And he went to the doctor, and they couldn't figure out anything that was going wrong with him. So he was like, all right, I'm just going to numb it myself. So he started taking a shitload of oxys and aspirin. And one day, his dealer ran out of oxy, and he was like, do you want to try this? And he was like, I'll try whatever. And he said that he did heroin maybe 10 times from 1986 to 1990. Wow. But I think that's bullshit. Like, I think he was a full-blown addict immediately. Like, he started smoking pot when he was 13. And then he started doing LSD. And then from there, he started um, abusing alcohol. And then he started shooting up heroin, you know, drastically. Life of a rock star. Yeah, let's just start shooting up heroin instead of smoking a doobie. I mean, it's drastic, but... A lot of people say once you try it, like, you get instantly hooked. Yeah. So, it's like euphoria everywhere. Yeah, I don't he, want to do that. No, and... I don't like that. I always say that. I'm like, I'm glad I never tried any drugs yeah, because me knowing too. me, I'm a very addictive person. Yeah. It, it wouldn't be good for me. I'll his, probably like it. His, um, his reasoning for not quitting heroin was because it made him feel better and he could eat. Okay. But, I mean, you're shooting up heroin, and you're you nodding out. your body. So. Yeah, pretty much. So, it was just kind of not... It was contradicting itself. His family had a really bad history of alcoholism and also suicide tendencies. Like, he had two uncles that died of um, suicide by gunshot. Mm-hmm. So, he wasn't really set up very well mentally. You could tell he was, like, depressed. Because, like, the shit that he would say and he would write, like, obviously he had depression. Obviously he had anxiety. On top of the stomach ailments and his addiction, he was, like, not set up very well. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't a very stable person. Um, when he had met Courtney, he went to a concert one night with the rest of the band. And Courtney was the lead singer and guitarist of Hole, which is another grunge band. And they had the same manager. And the manager was on the ground roughing with her because, like, when in the rock world, they said, when you punch somebody, it shows, like, they did a really good job. So he's punching on Courtney. And Kurt runs in there and jumps on him to break him apart. And they were just looking at him like, what, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> he was like, you were just hitting a chick. And it was Courtney Love. Yeah. So, like, they instantly hit it off. She kept getting him to try and go on dates with her her and he would like bail on her or not show up for the dates and like ignored her phone calls and shit until he was like you know what I really do like her she's pretty hot this will be cool but we we could do this let's get it on we could do this so instantly they like fell in love and were like this rock couple she said they were like the how did she say that they were like the sex couple icon or some shit Okay, so I was watching a montage of Heck, and, like, she was always topless. Mm-hmm. Like, she always wanted her tits out, and they were not cute. She did not have cute tits. She just wasn't attractive to me. Like, I thought she was ugly, and she was had an ugly personality. Yeah, personality does it for me. She's awful. And she's like, I'm the most hated person in America. Yeah, you are. <laughs> 
Nobody likes you, Courtney Love. Nobody. So, they ended up dating for two years before they got married. And she was sober for six months when she had met uh, met Kurt off of heroin. Mm -hmm. And she basically blamed it all on him for her starting heroin again. Which I think is bullshit. Like, you're the one that's putting the needle in your arm. She said, like, um, to be with Kurt, I had to be an addict. Oh, my God. So, like, she... So then don't be with him. Exactly. She was like, it was either Kurt and the drugs or be sober and be without Kurt. Because that was the only way I was going to have. You could have been sober, but... And single. Yeah, and single. Like, you didn't have to be with an addict. So, she basically puts the finger, like, points the finger on him of the blame of why she started using again. So... Don't like that. I just think it's a little bullshit. Like, she wanted to be with an addict. She wanted to have that rock star lifestyle. She wanted to have the addict as her man in her life. And she wanted... She had love for him once, so it all fell in her lap at once. Like, she didn't have any restrictions. She was living in heaven right there. Mm -hmm. And they continued their full-blown addiction as Kurt's success became overwhelming. And it kind of pushed him further into the shell that he was going in. Um, She became pregnant with Francis really quickly. Mm -hmm. And Courtney said they were trying to have a baby. Like, they wanted to have a baby as quick as possible. all of that? Yeah. And... They even said, like, she was shooting up while she was pregnant with Francis. Fuck no. And she told Kurt, like, um, I'm built like an ox, so the baby's going to be fine. Like, I could stop at any time and she's going to be fine. Which, Francis came out okay, but CPS was on their ass because they ran a news article, one magazine article, about a friend seeing her shoot up while she was pregnant. Mm -mm. And then she admits it. So, yeah, they're going to follow you around. You're shooting up heroin while you're pregnant. And how she even was able to raise her kid after that? Because they can never prove that she did it. Wasn't in her system or nothing when she gave birth? I don't think... I don't think they used to test like that, though. I mean, Mm -hmm. they probably should have. But um, when they went to get married on February 24th, 92, she was already pregnant. And Kurt had an obsession with Frances Farmer who was this actress back in the 50s or 40s and she had bipolar disorder and everybody thought that she was just batshit crazy Mm -hmm. so they put her in a sane asylum and they did lobotomies on her so she ended up escaping seattle and was able to live her life but she was never normal again so kurt was like super obsessed with her so on their wedding day courtney had bought um a lacy satin dress that was owned by Francis Farmer and his stupid ass wore a Guatemalan t-shirt with some green PJ bottoms because he was too lazy to wear a tux he said so he was dressed like he was going to sleep okay and she was wearing this cute little dress but she still looked like trash my opinion my opinion so they got married in Hawaii and um he only had eight people attend their wedding like they invited very few amount of people so, let's fast forward to her birth. So, it was August 18th, 1992. He ended up getting a sonogram from one of her ultrasounds and put it on the cover of the single lithium. Mm-hmm. So, he would always do morbid shit like that, like, um, in utero. 
I don't really remember what it was, but it was like a skeleton on the front. Like, he has all kinds of weird shit. And I thought he just kind of fell intact with it. They, she was born, so they were still abusing drugs. Like, immediately after she had the baby, she started using drugs. And CPS would come around all the time and, like, check on them. So they started piss testing them, running drug screens on them every day, and they ended up getting semi-clean. So after they went through all these legal fees and these trials and all this bullshit, they spent maybe like $400,000 on legal fees and their attorney fees and stuff. So CBS eventually left them alone. And I was watching Montage of Heck again, and there was a video of when... Courtney was cutting Francis's hair for the first time. And she's like, Kurt, come inside. Like, he was outside smoking a cigarette. She was like, come inside. Um, I want you to hold Francis while I cut her hair. And he's literally holding the baby, nodding in and out. Like, he's nodding in and out. And he's saying in the camera, like, nobody said anything about, about him being on drugs. And he's like, I'm not on drugs. I'm just tired. Obviously, you're on drugs, Kurt. You look strung out. You like, have sores all over your face. You're nodding in and out That's while you're holding you your wheel. And she would not shut the fuck up. She is so annoying. Like, watching these home videos of her make me more annoyed with her than anything. Because she just doesn't shut up. And she's so loud. Like, there's this video of them in their um, house. And they're in, like, this random office room. And they're jumping on each other. And she's singing at the top of her lungs. And he's playing a guitar very badly, and he's just beating it on the ground, and she's singing louder to be louder than what he is. It was so annoying. I was like, that's that couple that I just wouldn't want to see. <laughs> they were we'll so annoying together. They were so annoying together. So, after all this, after Francis turned a year old, or about to turn a year old, he was performing, excuse me, at a concert on July 23rd, 93. And he ended up overdosing over on heroin in his hotel room right before. Mm. And instead of Courtney calling the ambulance, she just shoots him up with um, Noxalin. And he goes on to perform the concert like nothing ever happened. What the fuck? Like he just wakes what is, up. Wait, wait. What is this Noxalin? What is that? Naloxin. It's kind of like... um. What are they shoot people up now? Um, Narcan. It's kind of like that, but it's a little bit stronger. And it was mm-hmm. easier for them to get. And it was cheaper. So she just shoots him up with it, and he pops up, and he goes on to perform that <laughs> concert that night. Oh, my God. Like, I did, you did not just almost die. An OD. You still have the heroin going through your face. She's like, bitch, get up. Go perform. Literally. Like, didn't, <laughs> didn't do anything. So he's obviously in a downward spiral. He's suffering from depression on top of a toxic love life on top of being a new dad on top of being a heroin addict on top of the rock style life rock star lifestyle like he is just full-fledged going downhill Mm. and (laughs) you want to know what's crazy they have a man nanny that lives in with them that takes care of francis and his name's michael callie dwight like Mm -hmm. they would call him callie guess who he is who Courtney's ex-boyfriend. That's weird. Also a full-blown junkie, too. Oh. Yeah, maybe that again. Poor Frances. Like, like, she didn't have so much already going against her with two junkie parents. And a junkie nanny. (laughs) And a junkie nanny. So, 
I get suspicious about them the more I look into it because about Courtney and the nanny. Yeah, because it's already her ex-boyfriend. Yeah. He lives with them. That's kind of weird. When Kurt's on tour, who's to say what she's doing in the house with Yeah. And they're both junkies, so they probably just get high out of their brains and fuck. So... And not watch Francis. And not watch Francis. So, on March 3rd, 1994, Kurt was hospitalized in Rome after overdosing on Rofinol, which is a pain pill. Mm Mm-hmm. And Courtney swore that he left a suicide note there, but she had burned it. So it's almost like she's trying to make up these trails of suicide attempts mm-hmm. that might not have actually been suicide attempts. Because, okay, so the way she explains it is he took 50 pills. He did it on purpose. He wanted to die. But I feel like he didn't realize how many he took, so he just kept taking more. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. So, the doctor that was treating Kurt, Dr. Um, Yuslavo mm-hmm. Galetta, was the doctor that treated him. And he said, quote, we can usually tell a suicide attempt and it didn't look like one for me. End quote. Courtney told the press that he was in a coma for 20 hours and was legally dead. But he wasn't. He was not dead. He was fine. He was good. He was getting treated by the doctor. So, I feel like it was a false trail of suicide attempts leading up to his actual death. Mm-hmm. Like, she's trying to make it look like he was yeah. suicidal for real. Like, maybe she was planning this. Yeah. And they ended up following that overdose with an intervention. And a few days before they did the intervention, Chris offered to buy him some supper. He was like, let's go get something to eat for dinner. We can hang out. We can play some music. We could chill. Mm-hmm. And he ended up unintentionally driving him to go score some dope. Unintentionally? Yeah, he was like... <laughs> so this is how he says it. He's like, quote, His dealer was right there. He wanted to get fucked up into oblivion. He just wanted to die. That's what he wanted to do. End quote. Like, he... Everywhere he turned, he had a dealer there. He was just getting fucked up all the time. And Chris didn't even realize that he was bringing him to go get dope. Yeah. He was just being a good friend, trying to get some dinner with him and hang out. So, the intervention followed Courtney and the rest of the group, the band, and some family to try and get him to, like, get sober. It's like, you have a baby now, you need to get your life together. So, she went to a hotel room in Los Angeles and detoxed in the room. And it was supposed to be, like, this legit program. While he went to actual rehab named Exodus Recovery Center and... He was there for a day. A day. And he jumps a six-foot brick building, like, wall, and escapes. Oh, my God. So, he, like, goes to the nearest air, um, airport, and he could have went and saw Courtney, which she was ten less than ten miles away from him at the rehab. Mm-hmm. But he decided to get to the airport, get a ticket, and come back home to Seattle. So, he paid, like, $400 for um, first first class flight and he's on his way to Seattle she notices that he's spending money like that and what he spent it on so she calls the credit card company and is like hey it was stolen I need you to cut it off so they cancel the credit card he has no money on him he's stuck in Seattle now so he has no way to get home so he ends up when he's on the plane he runs into Duff McCargan 
who was um, the guitarist for Guns N' Roses, mm-hmm. and he was also coming home from rehab for being addicted to heroin. Like, he was also coming home from rehab. So, they're hanging out on the plane, and they're, like, drinking, and they're having fun or whatever, and he noticed that Kurt was, like, really depressed. Like, everything he was talking about, he was being really depressed. So, he was like, Kurt said, I'm going to go outside and smoke, and Duff was like, all right, cool. So, he's talking to the guy that was picking him up, and he was like, look, we have been drinking, Kurt's depressed, like, there was no foreseeing that he was going to commit suicide. Let's just bring him back to our apartment and, like, let him hang out. Well, they walk outside to go get Kurt, and he's already gone. He already jumped in the cab and left. So he goes to the nearest hotel room, to the nearest junkie place, like, where he would normally score some dope. And he ended up buying some dope and stayed in the hotel room, 226. And he then decided he was going to go get some bullets. So nine days before they found his body... Him and Callie had went to a gun shop and bought a gun because they had burglaries in the area and they just wanted to be safe. Okay. So that's the reasoning for buying a 20-gauge shotgun. He bought some ammunition and on his ride to the rehab, he gave it to the guy that was bringing him. He was like, you need to get rid of this ammunition. And the guy was like, why? He was like, you just need to get rid of it. Why are you getting rid of ammunition if now, like, you just bought the gun? Why are you getting rid of the ammunition? What's the reason? So, it was a little suspicious. Like, why are you getting rid of it? What's the reasoning? Yada, yada, yada. So, when he gets to his house, he ends up going to his house on April 1st. And he sees Callie. And he, like, walks in Callie's room. His girlfriend's there. They're talking and shit. And then he leaves at 6.30 in the morning, gets in a cab, and leaves. Courtney and Callie had had um, communication that whole day. April 2nd mm-hmm. was the next day. They had communication the whole day. The next day, April 3rd, Courtney hires a private investigator named Tom Grant to find Kurt because he disappeared. He's not talking to Courtney. He's not returning her calls. She has no way to get in touch with him. But she doesn't tell the PI that Callie saw Kurt the day before. So you're hiring a PI, but you're not going to tell him the little bit of information that you have on your missing husband? Mm-hmm. Why? So he is a little suspicious immediately, and it ends up becoming revealed that Kurt was seeking a divorce, and they both signed a prenup. Kurt was more successful than Courtney was, so if they got a divorce, the only thing that they would split or she would get out of him is what they purchased while they were married. Mm-hmm. So, she wasn't going to get any fucking money. They were also going to fight over custody of Francis. And she... And neither one needed custody of her Francis. Period. (laughs) They both... Not saying Kurt was a shitty dad because he really did love her and treated her well. Yeah, but at the same time... fucking crackhead. Yeah, like he he wasn't stable at all. So, as soon as... The, okay, so Rosemary Carroll is the attorney for Kurt and Courtney. Uh-huh. And she was the one who did all the legal stuff whenever they were fighting CPS for Francis. She's also Francis's godmother. So, like, she's close into the family. And she was telling the PI, like, you know, Kurt was seeking a divorce. And Courtney calls me and tells me that he's seeking a divorce and she wants to find the meanest, sickest attorney that she can. 
and she wanted to get the prenup voided, which you can't. Yeah. You can't do that. Not when you're already seeking out a divorce. Like, maybe, like, if you did it right after, right? Like, if both parties agreed to, Yeah, if both parties agreed, it doesn't matter. But if you're trying to get it voided behind his back... After he's already seeking out divorce. Right. Sketch. So, it's already seeming suspicious. Mm -hmm. Well, while all this is taking place, they find out that, um, he ended up talking to a lawyer to file for divorce. So they're like, so he legit was going to divorce her. And she was cheating on him. Like, she tried to say... With the nanny? They never said who she was cheating on him, um, but obviously it was the nanny. Come on. Ex-boyfriend? Okay. And he lived with you? Y'all had, like, sexual attraction in the past. It just is fishy. Yeah. So she tried to say that Kurt was cheating on her. And... She said, you know, Kurt ha- Kurt caught me thinking about cheating on him. Like, I never even made the phone call to cheat on him. And he was threatening to kill himself. Why are you always trying to say that he's going to kill himself? Yeah. Like, it's kind of overkill right now. Yeah. She's so, trying to protect herself. He was already, like, a very successful grunge icon. And she fell off. And she's seen herself as the most hated woman of rock. Which, in my eyes, I feel like she deserved it because she was. She really was hated. And, I mean, we all agree why. Like, it's just suspicious how all this shit's going down. So, after all that bullshit had went down, nobody has heard from Kurt since April uh, April 2nd. It's April 3rd at this point. And every time she talked to the PI, he would record her conversation. He recorded every conversation he had with anybody. And she never disclosed information about Callie seeing him. She never exposed that she was also an addict, even though she was shooting up in front of him. What? Like, he meets up with her in the hotel room that she's supposed to be detoxing in. And they're shooting up heroin while he's talking to her. (sighs) They walk in at first when they first met her, and she's laying in this negligee that's see-through with, like, her pussy out her tits out, smoking a cigarette on her bed, like, trying to seduce these men. She's like, I could flirt with a chair. Like, I'm just a very flirtatious person. We see that you're a slut. Like, we see you, girl. We see what kind of person... I mean, no slut-shaming, but she is. I hate her. I'm allowed to use that word. I hate her. So, they had all this shit going on, and Francis had just been born, and it seemed like after his depression and all this and how bad he wanted to die having Francis kind of brought a light back to his life Mm -hmm. he was able to be happy he saw himself living longer he wanted to see her grow up so it's kind of like it switched his whole point of view of life around he wanted to live for Francis which a lot of parents are like that like having a kid sometimes saves people's lives Mm -hmm. and everything about the case points to suicide until you look really closely at the details they missed. So, we'll get into, like, him actually doing it. Courtney, as much as she tried to not point fingers at Kurt, she did. But she enheightened his addiction. She made it worse. She was, like, fire to the fuel. She made every aspect of his life worse. Like, Kurt was strung out, yes. But I feel like if he didn't get with her there was a chance where he would have got clean. 
but you're both an addict, so you're not going to take that initiative to get clean. You're living your life right now. Mm-hmm. LiveForLiveMusics.com said, quote, Grant was hired by Courtney Love to find Kurt Cobain when he left Exodus Recovery Center in Marina Del Rey, California, April 1st, 1994, and he couldn't be located. Love phoned a missing persons report to the Seattle police pretending to be Kurt Cobain's mother, Wendy O'Connor. She pretended like he was her... Mom. She was his mom. I don't know. I don't know. And also it says, Love remains in Los Angeles sending Grant to find Cobain with the help of Dylan Carson, which is one of the close friends. Love stated in O'Connor's name that Cobain was missing, he was suicidal, and in possession of a shotgun. Grant later evaluated the call as being a diversion to paint Kurt as suicidal as it was being set up as he was set up to be murdered. The impression left by Love's report was to be no less than the singer's mother felt that Cobain was a danger to himself and had the investigation toward the verdict of suicide. End mm-hmm. quote. So like she was trying to put it in the cop's head like I'm a worried mother my son is suicidal, like mm-hmm. da da da, but really it's the conniving wife that was calling. Not the Pain. mom didn't even know that Pain he was missing. The, the mom didn't even know that he had escaped rehab at this point. Damn. Courtney knew because she couldn't get in touch with Kurt. It it was such a fucked up situation because like you're gonna hide that about the parents, but at the same time you're gonna put in a missing persons report in his mom's name. It's just fucked up. Yeah, it's a spish. So, April 5th, 1994, Kirk Cobain walked to his fridge, grabbed a Burke's root beer, and headed to his greenhouse. He drinks half the drink, lights a cigarette, smokes while he melts down the heroin in his spoon. He injects himself in three times the lethal amount of heroin, and then pulls the trigger and shoots himself. Wow. Which is written on the death certificate. Like, on the autopsy report... He injected the heroin, and he shot himself. Mm -hmm. But there were some weird, suspicious things that happened. He wasn't discovered until April 8th. His death was April 5th. They didn't discover until April 8th. April 6th, the PI and Dylan, their friend, go to the greenhouse. I mean, go to their house, and they're looking at all the rooms. They're calling for him. There's, like, audio recording of them saying, Kurt, where are you? Like, where are you, Kurt? And then they find a letter that Callie had wrote to Kurt saying, look, you need to get in touch with Courtney. She's being really paranoid. It's not making sense that you're not calling her. Like, be a good man. Call your wife. Mm-hmm. It was. It looked like it was staged. Like, the way he was writing it, it was not sincere at all. He didn't give a shit. He was just trying to divert them. Mm-hmm. And Dylan was told by Courtney to take them to the greenhouse. And Dylan didn't bring the P.I. to the greenhouse. That was the only room in the entire house they did not check. They had eight police officers that went to that house the same day to check for Kurt, and nobody went in the greenhouse. Why would they not go there? Because it was ducked off. If you didn't know about the greenhouse in the house, you didn't know where it was, so you didn't know to look in it. But Dylan knew about it. He was told to bring him there, and he didn't. And he chose not to. Right. So, on April 8th, electrician goes to do some service work on Kurt and Courtney's house and he passes by the side view of a window 
and he sees a body laying there gripping the shotgun barrel and there's like not a lot of blood but he sees like a needle and a spoon and a box and he calls the cops and he's like i found a dead body i think it's kurt cobain hangs up with the cops and immediately calls the radio station and is like look i got some information for you i just found kurt cobain's oh body God. and the radio talk host or whatever was like I don't really believe you, man. Like, whatever. So he calls the police station. He's like, is there any, like, records of Kurt Cobain, being, his body being found? And they're like, yeah, we did find a body at Kurt Cobain's house. And he was like, oh, shit, it really was. So he tries to get back in touch with the guy, but he's too busy, like, being interviewed by the cops now. So at the crime scene, Tom Grant pulls up, which was a PI, mm-hmm. and he's trying to talk to the detective that's running the case. And he's like, look, um, I got some information that I feel like will help you. I was here the night before he today like there's some information I have that I think will be helpful and the guy's like I'll talk to you later I don't have any time to talk to you right now so that's suspicious about the cops because wouldn't you want to talk to somebody immediately yeah. about the information they might have about the situation that's going on yeah it just didn't make sense trying to get the information as fast as right possible. right so, Rosemary and Grant also thought that the letter seemed staged, and they just couldn't make sense of what was going on. The day after Kurt's body was found, Rosemary had a bag that was from Courtney that she left at her house, and they pull it out, and it's a piece of paper with a bunch of different letters on it. It's like she was practicing the alphabet for the suicide note. Mm-hmm. And, like... They said that the suicide note was two different handwritings. At first, it started talking to Buddha, who was his imaginary friend. And he's talking about leaving the music life and leaving the band and living his life. And then at the end, it's almost like a stereotypical suicide note. Like, I love you. Life's going to be better without me. Don't forget about me. Mm-hmm. Like, shit like that. In a separate handwriting. Exactly. So, so she just took a note from wherever his... Yeah, out his journal probably, yeah. and just started writing. Yeah, to make it look like a suicide note. So, they found the evidence of her trying to make letters look like his, and they compared it to the suicide note, and it was exact letters. Like she traced over it, like she traced the letter of Kurtz, then she traced over that. That's definitely suspicious. Yeah, and it was just these things weren't adding up, and they were coming out simultaneously like they were just not stopping so after all that they also noticed that when he had shot himself the rifle was upside down so the trigger was right here he would have to hold it like this you can't do that with a shotgun did he have long arms though i mean he was skinny and lanky but he had three times the lethal amount of heroin in his system so how could he accurately that up and pull the trigger like that it doesn't make any sense like he was probably not even conscious at that point so when they found the gun with him the shell would have went to the right it was found Mm -hmm. on the left side or was it the opposite one second i can't remember it was found on the left side of his body and it was supposed to go in the right so i was right but because it was upside down if the gun shell would have went to the side it was supposed to, it's almost as if it ricocheted off of something. Mm-hmm. So somebody might have been standing there shooting the gun, 
for it to ricochet to go the opposite way. Yeah. Or it was placed there to make it look like a suicide, even though it it wasn't. Like, when you die, your hand clutches. And, like, it's called the death grip. Mm-hmm. And he had that around the gun. So they're saying that, like, if the shell or the gun would have moved to go the opposite way, his whole wrist would have did something that's, like, impossible. Like, it would have been all the way around. So they were like, they never... <laughs> this is the part that pisses me off. The day that he was found, they send his body to get an autopsy. Six days later, they cremate the body. So they didn't do a second autopsy. They why? Because Courtney had privilege over his body. Oh my god! And she wanted it like cremated as soon as possible. Yeah. So of course. Wait, that's not the worst part. So he gets <sighs> cremated six days later. They never tested his body for gunpowder pl- residue. But what the. The detective on scene said that it was such a small area and it was a shotgun that the gunpowder would have traveled through the air anyway. So whether you shot the gun or not, he would have had it on him. Yeah. Because he was in close range, which is understandable. But they didn't print the gun. They didn't check for prints on it until 30 days after the day he was found. Okay, so the cops are either really shitty or a lot of them were paid... They didn't give a, a sum shit. of money to not do something. You turn the guy away who has information. You don't close down the crime scene the correct way. And it's a way. famous person. You think you would right. be, like, really particular. But somebody said, like, the easiest way to get rid of somebody is to kill a junkie. Because they think they just shoot up the heroin and so yeah. forth. They were like, oh, maybe he just, he didn't die because his body was used to heroin. So he shot himself instead. But it just seems like they're trying to make an alibi for Mm -hmm. it, you know? So, that's the shitty part. Then, Courtney ends up getting the shotgun back before the test results come back to get it melted down. See, why would you melt a gun? Why would you melt it? Why would you not just give it away or sell it or drop it off at a pawn shop? Like, I would want my money back. I wouldn't want that gun if... My significant other killed himself with it, you know, like exactly. I would sell it. Unless you're trying to get rid of the evidence. Uh, like melting it would not be cross crossing my mind. Exactly. It just would Like what are you melting it for? Yeah. For what? And also I'd want my money back. <laughs> Period. You want your money back. So after Kurt's death, Rosemary Carroll reveals to Grant that she feels the suicide note was forged. And that she had found the bag at Courtney's house. Well, in the middle of her talking about all this with Tom Grant, she goes, are you recording this? And he says, yes, I record every conversation I have. If it's dealing with the case I'm working on. Mm-hmm. She immediately recants everything that she said. She says that she denies everything. And if it comes public, she's going to throw him under the bus. Why are you trying to help this man so much if all of a sudden you find out it's recorded and you take back everything you said and you're a lawyer so she sends a lawsuit to tom grant suing him for blasphemy and stuff like that oh my god you willingly told him this information yeah exactly why does it have to disclose that you're being recorded Mm -hmm. obviously he's a pi obviously he's investigating it obviously he wants the evidence and to be able to play it back like come on why would you not record when you're in a situation like that exactly and that's your job 
Exactly. Mm -hmm. It was just... It was rhetorical for her to do that. Mm. So, while all this is going on, Courtney can't get her story straight of where Callie is. She says he was in Georgia. Then she says he was in El Paso, Texas. Then she says he was in Los Angeles. Well, the guy that was with Tom Grant the night before Kurt was found... He wants to have an interview with him because he's like, it doesn't make any sense. Why didn't he bring me to the greenhouse? Mm-hmm. Well, he's at Courtney's house and he's calling for him like, yo, Dylan, I'm here for the interview. Dylan comes downstairs high out of his mind on heroin. He's so strung out that he's nodding in and out trying to have a conversation with Tom Grant. Courtney knew what she was doing. Mm-hmm. She probably noticed that he was having anxiety about it and was nervous. So she shot him up so he couldn't talk about mm-hmm. it. So, Grant was like, you know what? I was fed up with it. Courtney tried to get him to stop investigating the situation by giving him a different case, like bribing him, to pay him to investigate another case instead of Kurt's case. Leave, yeah, to leave her as well. Why would you hire a PI if you didn't want... Like, you know, if you're doing some conniving, why would you hire a PI? Well, she probably just wanted on record that she hired a PI and she tried, but yeah. then realized he was actually doing his job. Panicked and because she... She was being suspicious yeah. to begin with. Yeah. Nothing added up with her. And, like, I just, I don't understand how, if they did murder him, how are two junkies smart enough to get away with it? To make it look like a suicide completely. Hmm. Or is it the fact that just nobody gives a fuck about the situation because Kurt was a junkie? Yeah. Like, I feel like that's more what it was. Like, nobody really gave a shit about him because of who he was. And multiple people had went into the house. Nobody went to the greenhouse. Nobody searched it. Nobody viewed it. It's just not adding up. And according to Rosemary, Dylan was told to take him into the greenhouse, and he didn't. So... All of these point towards the greenhouse, and nobody was disclosing the information. Nobody was giving anybody information about where Kurt was. Like, they didn't disclose that Callie had saw him the day before he died. Mm-hmm. I mean, the day before she hired the PI. Why are y'all being so secretive about this shit? Y'all knew his body was in there. Right. Y'all knew, in order to write the suicide note, you had to perfect the letters. You knew that if somebody went in there and saw the shotgun shell, they were going to search about it and see that it ricocheted and went in the wrong direction. I'm just wondering, with all this information that the cops had, like, why wasn't she because the prosecuted more? Like... The police of chief, I mean, the chief of police didn't want to reopen the case. He said it was shut, closed, case closed because it was a suicide. And the new chief of police said it would cost too much money to reopen the case. So what about Kurt's parents? Like, what did they... They just accepted that he committed suicide. What? Like, the people that were working the case... Even with all the other information? None of that information really came out until, you know, talk about, like, the movies came out and all this shit. Like, nobody really knew they were being investigated for that. so many questions. Right. Only... I guess only Kurt and Courtney now. This is true. Like, on April 17th... And one person's dead, so... On April 17th, uh, she was supposed to meet up with the PI to give him the coroner's report, and she never met up with them. Like, it... it, 
there's so many things that lead to her being guilty, but at the same time, it kind of leads on like her... Like, not guilty enough to cause, like... Exactly. Like, if she would confess, that would be one thing. But I feel like she just didn't give a fuck about anything well, in her life. She is still living. Maybe one day she'll come to something and... She's still struggling with heroin. Like, Frances ended up inheriting money from her dad mm-hmm. when her dad died. Because he had a will set So, who raised her, though, after Kurt died? Courtney? Yeah, on and off. Her oh, and wow. some grandparents and other friends and family helped. But, like, she was so strung out that Frances hated her. And Courtney ended up stealing money from Frances. That was from Kurt. Yeah. She what stole money from her. Hell? And she ended up getting like a billion dollars worth of things and money after Kurt died. And another reason why it seems so suspicious, he wanted the divorce, but he also was rewriting his will. So she wasn't going to be in his will mm-hmm. anymore. So she wasn't going to get anything. And she didn't, they said that like she felt like she was getting more sympathy with Kurt committing suicide than if they just got a divorce. Yeah. It was just really fucked up. And I think she did it. I think her and Callie did it. It definitely sounds suspicious. Like, I got a lot more questions. I feel like... That are obviously not going to get answered. Right. I feel like if he would have committed suicide, he would have just OD'd. Or he would have just shot himself. I don't think he would have done both. Yeah. Or, like, I feel like... Unless he he, wanted one last high, but... I really don't feel like he did it, though, because of Francis. You know? Yeah. It just seems like he had too much to live for now. But at the same time, everybody got demons. Mm, You're right. Courtney definitely is a demon. Fuck that bitch. Fuck her. Anyway, so that was our episode on the conspiracy of Kurt Cobain's death. Thank you guys for tuning in. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, welcome back to Crime Lime and Vodka. I'm Tracy. And I'm Amber. And today we're going to be doing The Conspiracy of Kurt Cobain's Death. I love him so much. <laughs> Whenever I was watching the documentary for Montage of Heck and uh, Soaked in Bleach, I was just mm-hmm. like, that's my man. I haven't even watched it yet. <laughs> Which one? Either? Either. Well, you see... So now I'm about to learn all the stuff. I watched him a long time ago, back in the day, when my, uh, almost said addiction, my obsession was at an all-time high, and <laughs> then I rewatched Monta- Montage of Heck yesterday, I think it was like last night, and Toby's like, that shit's so loud, because like, they're just playing his music so loud, like even for the movie, it was loud. So I was like, okay, I gotta keep turning this thing down. But Soaked in Bleach is about the conspiracy of what they think happened to him. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna get into it. So, Kurt Cobain was born on February 20th, 1967 in Aberdeen, Washington to Wendy Fardenberg. That was like her main name, but her name now is O'Connor. Mm-hmm. And Donald Cobain. His name was Kurt Donald Cobain. I thought it was Donald. cute. When he would sign his name, he would do k-u-r-d-t i think that's so cute his parents divorced when he was nine years old so that pretty much changed him completely he was like super happy and an excited kid and once they divorced he kind of just 
went down that spiral that a lot of divorced kids go through. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't have that, but, like, a mm-hmm. lot of my friends, they were always, like, I don't know. Their personalities changed a lot, I guess, with everything they were going through. His family had a musical background. His mom's father, which is his grandpa, played in a band called The Beachcomers. His aunt, Marie, or I guess you would say Mary Farley, played a guitar in an unnamed band. And his great uncle, Delbert, was an Irish tenor. Okay. So he's kind of destined to have, like, music in his blood. So he grew up around music. So they thought it was really cool. So for his 14th birthday, his uncle gave him the option, so I could buy you a bike or I could buy you a guitar. And he chose the guitar. He was right-handed, but he would play his guitar left-handed. So, like, he took it apart and restrung it to where he could play it left-handed-wise. Which, who thinks of doing that that shit? Yeah. That's like... When you play baseball, they have, like, a left-handed baseball yeah. glove and shit. I didn't know that until I started looking this shit up. <clears throat> so, he was seen as a very happy kid until the divorce. So, when his mom remarried, he started having, like, outbursts at school. And he would get super bully. Like, he would bully the other kids at school. And he started to break into shit or, like, break things or start failing school, skip school. Like, he stopped going to school completely and dropped out. So, like, he was showing how bad he was to piss them off, I feel like. Like, you know how they do the rebellious kid? Mm -hmm. Well, he was, like, the rebellious kid. And, um, he... He witnessed a lot of domestic abuse with his mom and his mom's, um, new husband, which it resulted in his mom having her arm broken. So, like, he witnessed a lot of the abuse that she was going through, and it would piss him off, but she wouldn't do anything about it. Like, she never left the man. She never divorced him. So, like, when he was going to therapy, his therapist was like, look, I think he needs a single-family environment. It would make him a lot better. Yeah. Well, instead of his dad taking that upon himself to make him feel more at home with his step-siblings and his siblings, he pushed him around so he moved in with his aunt and uncle and then he moved in with his grandparents both pairs of grandparents and none of them really wanted him he was just being pushed around by all these people so then he ended up moving with a friend named jesse reed and like when he started being like living with them he started going to church and he became um a born-again christian which is really weird because like when you listen to his music he's like anti-god everything mm-hmm. like in heart-shaped box he is hanging on a cross so i think that was really like well he's not legit so hanging on a cross still? but like did he die that way what do you mean christian did he say no he, he, say would, he was he, or that was just the thing that he did when he was younger it was just a thing he did when he was younger oh. i feel like he was very um he was very like into religion so he just um he started his anti-god fashion in his song lyrics later on i guess it like described him as a gnostic or whatever mm-hmm. so after he left jesse's home he began couch surfing and he would go stay in the waiting room of the hospital he was born in and like sleep in the waiting room because he said you know nobody's gonna tell the guy who's waiting on his sick family to leave or stop sleeping in here so he ju- he would do that when he had nowhere warm to stay did it work oh my. yeah he did it like he did it once in a while but like he said he didn't want to like get caught or anything so yeah. he's he didn't do it too frequently um 
he explained in one of his songs that he made something in the way that like he lived under a bridge and in cardboard boxes but they never had evidence that he actually did but i mean who was who's just gonna make that shit up yeah like Hmm. he was he was homeless so he did what he had to do but he would bounce around until he got a good gig and started jannering at a school he finally had enough money and would get hotel rooms so he ended up staying in um room 226 it was his favorite because it came from a song rock rock drugs and 226 so like i mean that's how rock he is or whatever he was just like he he was that rock icon or what the fuck ever he was like a sub pop genre until grunge came out because they never had grunge So in 1985, he formed a band named Fecal Matter after he dropped out of high school. They soon disbanded in 86. (laughs) Ew. Guys, Fecal Matter. Matter. I mean, Nirvana's way better. He got that from a Buddha uh, documentary he was watching. Yeah, that sounds better than Fecal Matter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He was gross, though. I mean... Dirty tampons. Like, he, a lot of his drawings, like, whenever you go through his journal, are gross. Like, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, born babies coming out of the vagina with hair. and Yeah. This weird shit that he would come up with. So, he would hang out with the band Melvin. And he even tried joining them, but he felt like they didn't fit his musical goals that he had going for himself. Until he met Chris. Novoselic. Well, I don't know how to say his name. I love this band so much, and I don't know how to say his name. Okay, we're going to call him Chris. He practiced upstairs above um, Chris's mom's hair salon with Mm -hmm. their band, and he tried to convince him to start a band with him, and he just refused to. He was like, nah, dude, we're not going to be in a band. But then they eventually started a band named Nirvana with a drummer named Chad. They played a few gigs, but, like, they weren't getting big because Chad sucked, but so did Kurt and Chris. They both sucked. (laughs) Like, Chris played guitar, but he didn't have these actual, like, rhythms that he would follow. He would Mm -hmm. just do that, and then he would just scream into the microphone. Like, they were not good. So, whenever they decided that Chad wasn't their goal, they fired him. And then he broke up with his girlfriend, Tracy, who he... He wanted a rock and roll girlfriend who was in that scene with him. Probably also a heroin addict. So, mm-hmm. he ended up getting a new drummer named Dave Grohl and a new girlfriend, Courtney Love. So, he started dabbling into heroin in 1986. And his reasoning for starting heroin was because he went to go to his dealer one day to get some oxy and aspirin because he had really bad stomach issues. And he would go to the hospital and try and figure out what was going on, like... He was just constantly throwing up or, like, shitting his brains out. He could never keep anything down. So when he would eat, he would just automatically get sick. Mm -hmm. So he had no nutrients. That's why he was so skinny. And he went to the doctor, and they couldn't figure out anything that was going wrong with him. So he was like, all right, I'm just going to numb it myself. So he started taking a shitload of oxys and aspirin. And one day, his dealer ran out of oxy, and he was like, do you want to try this? And he was like, I'll try whatever. And he said that he did heroin maybe 10 times from 1986 to 1990. Wow. But I think that's bullshit. Like, I think he was a full-blown addict immediately. Yeah. Like, he started smoking pot when he was 13. 
and then he started doing LSD, and then from there he started um, abusing alcohol, and then he started shooting up heroin, you know, drastically. Life of a rock star. Yeah, let's just start shooting up heroin instead of smoking a doobie. I mean, it's drastic, but a lot of people say once you try it, like, you get instantly hooked. Yeah. So, it's like euphoria everywhere. Yeah, I don't want to do that. No, and I I always say that. I'm like, I'm glad I never tried any drugs because knowing me, I'm a very addictive person. Yeah. It it wouldn't be good for me. I'll probably like it. His, um... His reasoning for not quitting heroin was because it made him feel better, and he could eat. Okay. But I mean, you're shooting up heroin, and you're you nodding out your body. Yeah, pretty much. So it was just kind of not. It was contradicting itself. His family had a really bad history of alcoholism and also suicide tendencies. Like he had two uncles that died of. Um, suicide by gunshot so he wasn't really set up very well mentally you could tell he was like depressed because like the shit that he would say he would write like obviously he had depression obviously he had anxiety on top of the stomach ailments and his addiction he was like not set up very well Mm -hmm. so he wasn't a very stable person um when he had met courtney he went to a concert one night with the rest of the band, and Courtney was the lead singer and guitarist of Hole, which is another grunge band. And they had the same manager. And the manager was on the ground roughing with her because, like, when in the rock world, they said, when you punch somebody, it shows, like, they did a really good job. So he's punching on Courtney, and Kurt runs in there and jumps on him to break him apart. And they were just looking at him like, what, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> he was like, you were just hitting a chick. And it was Courtney Love. Yeah. So, like, they instantly hit it off. She kept getting him to try and go on dates with her, with her, and he would, like, bail on her or not show up for the dates and, like, ignored her phone calls and shit until he was like, you know what, I really do like her. She's pretty hot. This would be cool. But we, we could do this. Let's get it on. We could do this. So, instantly, they, like, fell in love and were, like, this rock couple. She said they were, like, the... How did she say that? They were like the sex couple icon or some shit. Okay, so I was watching a montage of Heck and like she was always topless. Mm-hmm. Like she always wanted her tits out and they were not cute. She did not have cute tits. She just wasn't attractive to me. Like I thought she was ugly and she was had an ugly personality. Yeah, personality does it for me. She's awful. And she's like, I'm the most hated person in America. Yeah, you are. (laughs) Nobody likes you, Courtney Love. Nobody. So, they ended up dating for two years before they got married. And she was sober for six months when she had met met Kurt off of heroin. Mm -hmm. And she basically blamed it all on him for her starting heroin again. Which I think is bullshit. Like, you're the one that's putting the needle in your arm. She said, like, um, to be with Kurt, I had to be an addict. Oh, my God. So, like, she... So then don't be with him. Exactly. She was like, it was either Kurt and the drugs or be sober and be without Kurt. Because that was the only way I was going to have. You could have been sober, but... And single. 
Yeah, and single. Like, you didn't have to be with an addict. So, she basically puts the finger, like, points the finger on him of the blame of why she started using again. So. Don't like that. I just think it's a little bullshit. Like, she wanted to be with an addict. She wanted to have that rock star lifestyle. She wanted to have the addict as her man in her life. And she wanted, she had love for him once. So, it all fell in her lap at once. Like, she didn't have any restrictions. She was living in heaven right there. Mm-hmm. And they continued their full-blown addiction as Kurt's success became overwhelming. And it kind of pushed him further into the shell that he was going in. Um, she became pregnant with Francis really quickly. Mm-hmm. And Courtney said they were trying to have a baby. Like, they wanted to have a baby as quick During as possible. all of that? Yeah. And they even said, like, she was shooting up while she was pregnant with Francis. Fuck no. And she told Kurt, like... Um, I'm built like an ox, so the baby's going to be fine. Like, I could stop at any time, and she's going to be fine. Which, Francis came out okay, but CPS was on their ass because they ran a news article, one magazine article, about a friend seeing her shoot up while she was pregnant. Mm-mm. And then she admits it. So, yeah, they're going to follow you around. You're shooting up heroin while you're pregnant. And how she even was able to raise her kid after that? Because they can never prove that she did it. Wasn't in like, a system or nothing when she gave birth? I don't think I don't think they used to test like that though. I mean mm-hmm. they probably should have. But um when they went to get married on February twenty fourth, ninety two, she was already pregnant. And Kurt had an obsession with Frances Farmer, who was this actress back in the fifties or forties, and she had bipolar disorder and Everybody thought that she was just that shit crazy. Mm-hmm. So they put her in a sane asylum and they did lobotomies on her. So she ended up escaping Seattle and was able to live her life, but she was never normal again. So Kurt was like super obsessed with her. So on their wedding day, Courtney had bought um, a lacy satin dress that was owned by Francis Farmer. And his stupid ass wore a Guatemalan t-shirt with some green PJ bottoms because he was too lazy to wear a tux, he said. So he was dressed like he was going to sleep. Okay. And she was wearing this cute little dress, but she still looked like trash. My opinion. My opinion. So they got married in Hawaii, and um, he only had eight people attend their wedding. Like, they invited very few amount of people. So let's fast forward to her birth so it was august 18th 1992 he ended up getting a sonogram from one of her ultrasounds and put it on the cover of the single lithium mm-hmm. so he would always do morbid shit like that like um in utero i don't really remember what it was but it was like a skeleton on the front like he has all kinds of weird shit and i thought it just kind of fell intact with it they she was born, so they were still abusing drugs. Like, immediately after she had the baby, she started using drugs, and CPS would come around all the time and, like, check on them. So they started piss-testing them, running drug screens on them every day, and they ended up getting semi-clean. So after they went through all these legal fees and these trials and all this bullshit, they spent maybe, like, $400,000 on legal yeah. fees and their attorney fees and stuff. So CPS eventually left them alone. And I was watching Montage of Heck again, and there was a video of when 
Courtney was cutting Francis's hair for the first time. And she's like, Kurt, come inside. Like, he was outside smoking a cigarette. She was like, come inside. Um, I want you to hold Francis while I cut her hair. And he's literally holding the baby, nodding in and out. Like, he's nodding in and out. And he's saying in the camera, like, nobody said anything about, about, about him being on drugs. And he's like, I'm not on drugs. I'm just tired. Obviously, you're on drugs, Kurt. You look strung out. You like, have sores all over your face. You're nodding in and out while you're holding you your one And she would not shut the fuck up. She is so annoying. Like, watching these home videos of her make me more annoyed with her than anything. Because she just doesn't shut up. And she's so loud. Like, there's this video of them in their um, house. And they're in, like, this random office room. And they're jumping on each other, and she's singing at the top of her lungs. And he's playing a guitar very badly, and he's just beating it on the ground. And she's singing louder, to be louder than what he is. It was so annoying. I was like, that's that couple that I just wouldn't want to see. (laughs) They were so annoying together. They were so annoying together. So, after all this, after Francis turned a year old, or about to turn a year old, he was performing excuse me, at a concert on July 23rd, 93. And he ended up overdosing over on heroin in his hotel room right before. Mm. And instead of Courtney calling the ambulance, she just shoots him up with um, Noxalin. And he goes on to perform the concert like nothing ever happened. What the fuck? Like he just wakes what up. Is, wait, wait. What is this Noxalin? What is that? Naloxin. It's kind of like, um, what, what do they shoot people up now? Um, Narcan. It's kind of like that, but it's a little bit stronger. And it was Mm. easier for them to get. And it was cheaper. So, she just shoots him up with it, and he pops up, and he goes on to perform (laughs) that concert that night. Oh my god. Like, you did not just almost die. An OD. You still have the heroin going through your veins. She's like, bitch, get up. Go perform. Literally. Like, didn't didn't do anything. So, he's obviously in a downward spiral. He's suffering from depression on top of a toxic love life, on top of being a new dad, on top of being a heroin addict, on top of the rock style life, rock star lifestyle. Like, he is just full-fledged going downhill. And <laughs> you want to know what's crazy? They have a man nanny that lives in with them that takes care of Francis and his name's Michael Callie Dwight. Like, mm-hmm. they would call him Callie. Guess who he is? Who? Courtney's ex-boyfriend. That's weird. Also a full-blown junkie, too. Oh. Yeah, maybe that again. Poor Frances. Like, she, like, she didn't have so much already going against her with two junkie parents. And <laughs> a junkie nanny. And a junkie nanny. So, I... I get suspicious about them the more I look into it because... About Courtney and the nanny? Yeah, because it's already her ex-boyfriend. Yeah. He lives with them. That's kind of weird. When Kurt's on tour, who's to say what she's doing in the house with Yeah. Him? And they're both junkies, so they probably just get high out of their brains and fuck. So... And not watch Francis. And not watch Francis. So, on March... 3rd, 1994, Kurt was hospitalized in Rome after overdosing on Rofinol, which is a pain pill. Mm-hmm. And Courtney swore that he left a suicide note there, but she had burned it. 
So, it's almost like she's trying to make up these trails of suicide attempts mm-hmm. that might not have actually been suicide attempts. Because, okay, so the way she explains it is he took 50 pills. He did it on purpose. He wanted to die. But I feel like he didn't realize how many he took, so he just kept taking more. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. So the doctor that was treating Kurt, Dr. Um, Yuslavo mm-hmm. Galetta, was the doctor that treated him. And he said, quote, we can usually tell a suicide attempt and it didn't look like one for me. End quote. Courtney told the press that he was in a coma for 20 hours and was legally dead. But he wasn't. He was not dead. He was fine. He was good. He was getting treated by the doctor. So, I feel like it was a false trail of suicide attempts leading up to his actual death. Mm-hmm. Like, she's trying to make it look like he was yeah. suicidal for real. Like, maybe she was planning this. Yeah. And they ended up following that overdose with an intervention. And a few days before they did the intervention... Chris offered to buy him some supper. He was like, let's go get something to eat for dinner. We can hang out. We can play some music. We could chill. Mm -hmm. And he ended up unintentionally driving him to go score some dope. Unintentionally? Yeah, he was like... (laughs) So this is how he says it. He's like, quote, His dealer was right there. He wanted to get fucked up into oblivion. He just wanted to die. That's what he wanted to do. End quote. Like, he... Everywhere he turned, he had a dealer there. He was just getting fucked up all the time. And Chris didn't even realize that he was bringing him to go get dope. Yeah. He was just being a good friend trying to get some dinner with him and hang out. So, the intervention followed Courtney and the rest of the group, the band, and some family to try and get him to, like, get sober. It's like, you have a baby now. You need to get your life together. So, she went to a hotel room in Los Angeles and detoxed in the room. And it was supposed to be, like, this legit program. While he went to actual rehab named Exodus Recovery Center. And he was there for a day. A day. And he jumps a six-foot brick building, like, wall, and escapes. Oh, my God. So, he, like, goes to the nearest air, um, airport. And he could have went and saw Courtney, which she was ten less than ten miles away from him at the rehab. Mm-hmm. But he decided to get to the airport, get a ticket, and come back home to Seattle. So he paid like four hundred dollars for um, first first class flight, and he's on his way to Seattle. She notices that he's spending money like that, and what he spent it on. So she calls the credit card company and is like, "Hey, it was stolen. I need you to cut it off." So they cancel the credit card. He has no money on him. He's stuck in Seattle now, so he has no way to get home. So he ends up. When he's on the plane, he runs into Duff McCargan, who was um, the guitarist for Guns N' Roses, and he was also coming home from rehab for being addicted to heroin. Like, he was also coming home from rehab. So, they're hanging out on the plane, and they're, like, drinking, and they're having fun or whatever, and he noticed that Kurt was, like, really depressed. Like, everything he was talking about, he was being really depressed. So, he was, like... Kurt said, I'm going to go outside and smoke. And Duff was like, all right, cool. So he's talking to the guy that was picking him up. And he was like, look, we have been drinking. Kurt's depressed. Like, there was no foreseeing that he was going to commit suicide. Let's just bring him back to our apartment and, like, let him hang out. 
Well, they walk outside to go get Kurt, and he's already gone. He already jumped in the cab and left. So he goes to the nearest hotel room, to the nearest junkie place, like where he would normally score some dope. And he ended up buying some dope and stayed in the hotel room, 226. And he then decided he was going to get some bullets. So nine days before they found his body, him and Callie had went to a gun shop and bought a gun. Because they had burglaries in the area and they just wanted to be safe. Okay. So that's the reasoning for buying a 20 gauge shotgun. He bought some ammunition and on his ride to the rehab, he gave it to the guy that was bringing him. He was like, you need to get rid of this ammunition. And the guy was like, why? He was like, you just need to get rid of it. Why are you getting rid of ammunition if now, like you just bought the gun? Why are you getting rid of the ammunition? What's the reason? So it was a little suspicious. Like, why are you getting rid of it? What's the reasoning? Yada, yada, yada. So, when he gets to his house, he ends up going to his house on April 1st, and he sees Callie, and he, like, walks in Callie's room, his girlfriend's there, they're talking and shit, and then he leaves at 6.30 in the morning, gets in the cab, and leaves. Courtney and Callie had had um, communication that whole day. April 2nd Mm -hmm. was the next day. They had communication the whole day. The next day, April 3rd, Courtney hires a private investigator named Tom Grant to find Kurt because he disappeared. He's not talking to Courtney. He's not returning her calls. She has no way to get in touch with him. But she doesn't tell the P.I. that Callie saw Kurt the day before. So you're hiring a P.I., but you're not going to tell him the little bit of information that you have on your missing husband? Mm-hmm. Why? So he is a little suspicious immediately. And it ends up becoming revealed that Kurt was seeking a divorce, and they both signed a prenup. Kurt was more successful than Courtney was, so if they got a divorce, the only thing that they would split or she would get out of him is what they purchased while they were married. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't going to get any fucking money. They were also going to fight over custody of Francis, and she and had neither imp- one needed custody over Francis. Period. They both, not saying Kurt was a shitty dad because he really did love her and treated her well. Yeah, but at but the you same can't time, be a fucking crackhead. Yeah, like he, he wasn't stable at all. So, as soon as the okay, so Rosemary Carroll is the attorney for Kurt and Courtney, uh-huh. and she was the one who did all the legal stuff whenever. They were fighting CPS for Francis. She's also Francis's godmother. So, like, she's close into the family. And she was telling the PI, like, you know, Kurt was seeking a divorce. And Courtney calls me and tells me that he's seeking a divorce. And she wants to find the meanest, sickest attorney that she can. And she wanted to get the prenup voided, which you can't. Yeah. You can't do that. Not when you're already seeking out a divorce. Like, maybe, like, if you did it right after, right? Like, if both parties agreed to, Yeah, like, if both parties it. agreed, it doesn't matter. But if you're trying to get avoided behind his back... After he's already seeking out a divorce. Right, right. Sketch. So, it's already seeming suspicious. Mm-hmm. Well, while all this is taking place, they find out that, um, he ended up 
talking to a lawyer to file for divorce. So we're like, so he legit was gonna divorce her, and she was cheating on him. Like she tried to say With the nanny. They never said who she was cheating on her, um, but obviously it was the nanny. Come on, ex boyfriend. Okay, and he lived with you. Y'all had like sexual attraction in the past. It just is fishy. Yeah. So she tried to say that Kurt was cheating on her, and she said, you know, Kurt had. Kurt caught me thinking about cheating on him. Like, I never even made the phone call to cheat on him. And he was threatening to kill himself. Why are you always trying to say that he's going to kill himself? Yeah. Like, it's kind of overkill right now. Yeah. She's so, trying to protect herself. He was already, like, a very successful grunge icon. And she fell off. And she's seen herself as the most hated woman of rock. Which, in my eyes, I feel like she deserved it. Because she was. She really was hated, and, I mean, we all agree why. Like, it's just suspicious how all this shit's going down. So, after all that bullshit had went down, nobody has heard from Kurt since April April 2nd. It's April 3rd at this point, and every time she talked to the PI, he would record her conversation. He recorded every conversation he had with anybody. And she never disclosed information about Callie seeing him. She never exposed that she was also an addict, even though she was shooting up in front of him. What? Like, he meets up with her in the hotel room that she's supposed to be detoxing in, and they're shooting up heroin while he's talking to her. <sighs> they walk in at first when they first met her, and she's laying in this negligee that's see-through with, like, her pussy out, her tits out, smoking a cigarette on her bed, like, trying to seduce these men. She's like... I could flirt with a chair. Like, I'm just a very flirtatious person. We see that you're a slut. Like, we see you, girl. We see what kind of person... I mean, no slut shaming, but she is. I hate her. I'm allowed to use that word. I hate her. So, they had all this shit going on. And Francis had just been born. And it seemed like after his depression and all this and how bad he wanted to die... Having Francis kind of brought a light back to his life. Mm-hmm. He was able to be happy. He saw himself living longer. He wanted to see her grow up. So it's kind of like it switched his whole point of view of life around. He wanted to live for Francis, which a lot of parents are like that. Like, having a kid sometimes saves people's lives. Some mm-hmm. people. And everything about the case points to suicide until you look really closely at the details they missed. So... We'll get into, like, him actually doing it. Courtney, as much as she tried to not point fingers at Kurt, she did. But she heightened his addiction. She made it worse. She was, like, fire to the fuel. She made every aspect of his life worse. Like, Kurt was strung out, yes. But I feel like if he didn't get with her, there was a chance where he would have got clean. But you're both an addict, so you're not going to take that initiative to get clean. You're living your life right now. Mm-hmm. com said, quote, Grant was hired by Courtney Love to find Kurt Cobain when he left Exodus Recovery Center in Marina Del Rey, California. April 1st, 1994, and he couldn't be located. Love phoned a missing persons report to the Seattle police pretending to be Kurt Cobain's mother, Wendy O'Connor. She pretended like he was her. She was his mom. I don't know. I don't know. And 
also it says, Love remains in Los Angeles sending Grant to find Cobain with the help of Dylan Carson, which is one of Nicola's friends. Love stated in O'Connor's name that Cobain was missing, he was suicidal, and in possession of a shotgun. Grant later evaluated the call as being a diversion to paint Curtis suicidal as it was being set up as he was set up to be murdered. The impression left by Love's report was to be no less than the singer's mother felt that Cobain was a danger to himself and had the investigation toward the verdict of suicide. Mm-hmm. End quote. So like she was trying to put it in the cop's head like I'm a worried mother my son is suicidal, like, mm-hmm. da 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 but really it's just the conniving wife that was calling. Not The Pain. mom didn't even know that Pain he was missing. The, the mom didn't even know that he had escaped rehab at this point. Damn. Courtney knew, because she couldn't get in touch with Kurt. It, it was such a fucked up situation, because, like, you're going to hide that about the parents, but at the same time, you're going to put in a missing persons report in his mom's name. It's just fucked up. Yeah, it's a spish. So, April 5th, 1994, Kirk Cobain walked to his fridge, grabbed a Burke's root beer, and headed to his greenhouse. He drinks half the drink, lights a cigarette, smokes while he melts down the heroin in his spoon. He injects himself in three times the lethal amount of heroin, and then pulls the trigger and shoots himself. Wow. Which is written on the death certificate. Like, on the autopsy report... He injected the heroin, and he shot himself. Mm -hmm. But there were some weird, suspicious things that happened. He wasn't discovered until April 8th. His death was April 5th. They didn't discover until April 8th. April 6th, the PI and Dylan, their friend, go to the greenhouse. I mean, go to their house, and they're looking in all the rooms. They're calling for him. There's, like, audio recording of them saying, Kurt, where are you? Like, where are you, Kurt? And then they find a letter that Callie had wrote to Kurt saying, look, you need to get in touch with Courtney. She's being really paranoid. It's not making sense that you're not calling her. Like, be a good man. Call your wife. Mm-hmm. It was. It looked like it was staged. Like, the way he was writing it, it was not sincere at all. He didn't give a shit. He was just trying to divert them. Mm-hmm. And Dylan was told by Courtney to take them to the greenhouse. And Dylan didn't bring the P.I. to the greenhouse. That was the only room in the entire house they did not check. They had eight police officers that went to that house the same day to check for Kurt, and nobody went in the greenhouse. Why would they not go there? Because it was ducked off. If you didn't know about the greenhouse in the house, you didn't know where it was, so you didn't know to look in it. But Dylan knew about it. He was told to bring him there, and he didn't. And he chose not to. Right. So, on April 8th, electrician goes to do some service work on Kurt and Courtney's house and he passes by the side view of a window and he sees a body laying there gripping the shotgun barrel and there's like not a lot of blood but he sees like a needle and a spoon and a box and he calls the cops and he's like I found a dead body I think it's Kurt Cobain hangs up with the cops and immediately calls the radio station and is like look I got some information for you I just found Kurt Cobain's body and the radio talk host or whatever was like, I don't really believe you, man. Like, whatever. So he calls the police station. He's like, is there any, like, records of Kurt Cobain, being, his body being found? And they're like, yeah, we did find a body at Kurt Cobain's house. And he was like, oh, shit, it really was. So he tries to get back in touch with the guy. But he's too busy, like, being interviewed by the cops now. 
So at the crime scene, Tom Grant pulls up, which was the PI, mm-hmm. and he's trying to talk to the detective that's running the case. And he's like, look, um, I got some information that I feel like will help you. I was here the night before he today. Like, there's some information I have that I think will be helpful. And the guy's like, I'll talk to you later. I don't have any time to talk to you right now. So that's suspicious about the cops. Because wouldn't you want to talk to somebody immediately yeah. about the information they might have about the situation that's going on? Yeah. It just didn't make sense. Trying to get the information as fast as Right. Right. So Rosemary and Grant also thought that the letter seemed staged. And they just couldn't make sense of what was going on. The day after Kurt's body was found, Rosemary had a bag that was from Courtney that she left at her house, and they pull it out, and it's a piece of paper with a bunch of different letters on it. It's like she was practicing the alphabet for the suicide note. Mm -hmm. And, like, they said that the suicide note was two different handwritings. At first, it started talking to Buddha, who was his imaginary friend, and he's talking about leaving the music life and leaving the band and living his life and then at the end it's almost like a stereotypical suicide note like i love you life's gonna be better without me don't forget about me mm-hmm. like shit like that in a separate handwriting exactly so so she just took a note from wherever his yeah out his journal probably yeah, and just started writing to yeah to make it look like a suicide note so they found the evidence of her trying to make letters look like his and they compared it to the suicide note and it was exact letters like she traced over it like she traced the letter of kurtz then she traced over that that's definitely suspicious yeah and it was just these things weren't adding up and they were coming out simultaneously like they were just not stopping so after all that they also noticed that when he had shot himself the rifle was upside down so the trigger was right here. He would have to hold it like this. You can't do that with a shotgun. Did he have long arms? No. I mean, he was skinny and lanky, but he had three times the lethal amount of heroin in his system. So yeah, how so could he, he accurately pick that up? and pull the trigger like that? It doesn't make any sense. Like, he was probably not even conscious at that point. So when they found the gun with him, the shell would have went to the right it was found Mm. on the left side or was it the opposite one one second i can't remember it was found on the left side of his body and it was supposed to go on the right so i was right but because it was upside down if the gun shell would have went to the side it was supposed to it's almost as if it ricocheted off of something Mm -hmm. so somebody might have been standing there shooting the gun for it to ricochet to go the opposite way. Yeah. Or it was placed there to make it look like a suicide, even though it it wasn't. Like, when you die, your hand clutches, and, like, it's called the death grip, mm-hmm. and he had that around the gun. So they're saying that, like, if the shell or the gun would have moved to go the opposite way, his whole wrist would have did something that's, like, impossible. Like, it would have been all the way around. So they were like, they never... <laughs> This is the part that pisses me off. The day that he was found, they send his body to get an autopsy. Six days later, they cremate the body. So they didn't do a second autopsy. 
they why because Courtney had privilege over his body oh my god and she wanted it like cremated as soon as possible yeah so of course wait that's not the worst part so he gets <sighs> cremated six days later they never tested his body for gunpowder pl- residue but what the the detective on scene said that it was such a small area and it was a shotgun that the gunpowder would have traveled through the air anyway. So whether you shot the gun or not, he would have had it on him. Yeah. Because he was in close range, which is understandable. But they didn't print the gun. They didn't check for prints on it until 30 days after the day he was found. Okay, so the cops are either really shitty or a lot of them were paid... They didn't give a, a sum shit. of money to not do something. You turn the guy away who has information. You don't close down the crime scene the correct way. And it's way. a famous person. You think you would right. be like really particular. But somebody said like the easiest way to get rid of somebody is to kill a junkie. Because they think they just shoot up the heroin and it's yeah. over with. They were like, oh, maybe he just, he didn't die because his body was used to heroin. So he shot himself instead. But it just seems like they're trying to make an alibi for Mm -hmm. it, you know? So, that's the shitty part. Then, Courtney ends up getting the shotgun back before the test results come back to get it melted down. See, why would you melt a gun? Why would you melt it? Why would you not just give it away or sell it? Or drop it off at a pawn shop? Like, I would want my money back. I wouldn't want that gun if... My significant other killed himself with it, you know, like exactly. I would sell it. Unless you're trying to get rid of the evidence. Uh, like melting it would not be cross crossing my mind. Exactly. It just would Like what are you melting it for? Yeah. For why? And also I'd want my money back. <laughs> Period. You want your money back. So after Kurt's death, Rosemary Carroll reveals to Grant that she feels the suicide note was forged. And that she had found the bag at Courtney's house. Well, in the middle of her talking about all this with Tom Grant, she goes, are you recording this? And he says, yes, I record every conversation I have. If it's dealing with the case I'm working on. Mm -hmm. She immediately recants everything that she said. She says that she denies everything. And if it comes public, she's going to throw him under the bus. Why are you trying to help this man so much if all of a sudden you find out it's recorded and you take back everything you said and you're a lawyer so she sends a lawsuit to tom grant suing him for blasphemy and stuff like that oh my god you willingly told him this information yeah exactly why does it have to disclose that you're being recorded Hmm. obviously he's a pi obviously he's investigating it obviously he wants the evidence and to be able to play it back like come on why would you not record when you're in a situation like that exactly and that's your job Exactly. It was just, it was rhetorical for her to do that. Mm. So, while all this is going on, Courtney can't get her story straight of where Callie is. She says he was in Georgia. Then she says he was in El Paso, Texas. Then she says he was in Los Angeles. Well, the guy that was with Tom Grant the night before Kurt was found, he wants to have an interview with him. Because he's like, it doesn't make any sense. Why didn't he bring me to the greenhouse? Mm-hmm. Well, he's at Courtney's house. And he's calling for him like, yo, Dylan, I'm here for the interview. Dylan comes downstairs high out of his mind on heroin. He's so strung out that he's nodding in and out trying to have a conversation with Tom Grant. 
Courtney knew what she was doing. Mm-hmm. She probably noticed that he was having anxiety about it and was nervous, so she shot him up so he couldn't talk about mm-hmm. it. So Grant was like, you know what? I was fed up with it. Courtney tried to get him to stop investigating the situation by giving him a different case, like bribing him to pay him to investigate another case instead of Kurt's to case. Leave, yeah, to leave her as well. Why would you hire a PI if you didn't want... Like, you know, if you're doing some conniving, why would you hire a PI? Well, she probably just wanted on record that she hired a PI and she tried, but yeah. then realized he was actually doing his job. Panicked because she... She was being suspicious yeah. to begin with. Yeah. Nothing added up with her. And, like, I just, I don't understand how, if they did murder him, how are two junkies smart enough to get away with it? To make it look like a suicide completely. Mm. Or is it the fact that just nobody gives a fuck about the situation because Kurt was a junkie? Yeah. Like, I feel like that's more what it was. Like, nobody really gave a shit about him because of who he was. And multiple people had went into the house. Nobody went to the greenhouse. Nobody searched it. Nobody viewed it. It's just not adding up. And according to Rosemary, Dylan was told to take him into the greenhouse, and he didn't. So... All of these point towards the greenhouse, and nobody was disclosing the information. Nobody was giving anybody information about where Kurt was. Like, they didn't disclose that Callie had saw him the day before he died. Mm -hmm. I mean, the day before she hired the PI. Why are y'all being so secretive about this shit? Y'all knew his body was in there. Right. Y'all knew, in order to write the suicide note, you had to perfect the letters. You knew that if somebody went in there and saw the shotgun shell, they were going to search about it and see that it ricocheted and went in the wrong direction. I'm just wondering, with all this information that the cops had, like, why wasn't she because the, prosecuted more? Like, the police of chief, I mean, the chief of police didn't want to reopen the case. He said it was shut, closed, case closed, because it was a suicide. And the new chief of police said it would cost too much money to reopen the case. So what about Kurt's parents? Like, what did they... They just accepted that he committed suicide. What? Like, the people that were working the case... Even with all the other information? Damn. None of that information really came out until, you know, talk about, like, the movies came out and all this shit. Like, nobody really knew they were being investigated for that. so many questions. Right. Only... I guess only Kurt and Courtney now. This is true. Like, on April 17th... And one person's dead, so... On April 17th, uh, she was supposed to meet up with the PI to give him the coroner's report, and she never met up with them. Like, it, it... There's so many things that lead to her being guilty, but at the same time, it kind of leads on her... Like, not guilty enough to cause, like... Exactly. Like, if she would confess, that would be one thing. But I feel like she just didn't give a fuck about anything well, in her life. She is still living. Maybe one day she'll come to something and... She's still struck out with heroin. Like, Frances ended up inheriting money from her dad mm-hmm. when her dad died. Because he had a will So, set. who raised her, though, after Kurt died? Courtney? Yeah, on and off. Her and some grandparents and other friends and family helped. 
But, like, she was so strung out that Francis hated her. And Courtney ended up stealing money from Francis. That was from Kurt. Yeah. She what stole money from hell? her. And she ended up getting, like, a billion dollars worth of things and money after Kurt died. And another reason why it well, seems so suspicious, he wanted the divorce, but he also was rewriting his will. So she wasn't going to be in his will mm-hmm. anymore. So she wasn't going to get anything. And she didn't... They said that, like, she felt like she was getting more sympathy with Kurt committing suicide than if they just got a divorce. Yeah. It was just really fucked up. And I think she did it. I think her and Callie did it. It definitely sounds suspicious. Like, I got a lot more questions. I feel like... That are obviously not going to get answered. Right. I feel like if he would have committed suicide he would have just OD'd or he would have just shot himself I don't think he would have done both Yeah. or like I feel like unless he he wanted one last high but I really don't feel like he did it though because of Francis you know it just seems like he had too much to live for now but at the same time everybody got demons Mm, you're right Courtney definitely is a demon fuck that bitch but anyway, so that was our episode on the conspiracy of Kurt Cobain's death. Thank you guys for tuning in. Bye. Bye.